This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. This is A's Cast Live. Your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep. Bam going back. Looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. Cody Bellinger hits one out. Pete Alonso, he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. Oh, you want to talk spin rate? Don't worry. Coming up later today, we're going to talk gyro spin rate whatever the heck that means with scott emerson pitching coach of your oakland athletics we got a great show for you paul hembikides from espn at 130 a's hall of famer dave stewart at two scott emerson the pitching coach at three o'clock and then longtime baseball columnist scott miller will be here at 3 30 a lot to talk about and we start today's show with remembering you know, truly one of the great managers of all time passed away. The great Tommy Lasorda, the Hall of Famer, two-time World Series champion, uh, coached uh, the Olympic team to a gold medal, won 1,599 games over 21 years with the Dodgers. And I say this all the time that, you know, the days of the Tommy Lasordas are, you know, you start thinking about these legendary managers and Sparky Anderson. And you think about these guys who truly were the face of your organization. They truly were field generals. They made all the decisions. Earl Weaver. That just is not how the game goes anymore. It's a collective group. It's a collective effort. And we've seen that in multiple sports. And I can tell you my time covering the Golden State Warriors. It's not all Steve Kerr. The front office has a lot to say on how the Warriors play basketball. And the same thing in baseball. It's a collective group. It's the the GM. It's the assistant GMs. It's the manager. They're all making decisions together. So these legendary managers that, you know, their opinion is was the end all how they set the lineup how they did everything it, it, that's not that's not how coaching is going to go uh in the future but Tommy Lasorda was a terrific manager and you think about all the great players he was around all these years um you know 93 years old got to see the Dodgers win one more world series and uh Rest in peace, Tommy Lasorda. How are you, Commander? I'm doing well, and 
Uh, we'll get to my, my weekend and the how that went. But with Tommy Lasorda, I was watching a lot of stuff on Friday about him. And I kind of had a good idea on Tommy Lasorda. Like, I knew how great of a manager he was and how he connected with his players. I watched Oral Hershiser's interview on MLB Now about him. Um, Alex Avila, uh, or Avila, sorry. His dad's Al Avila, but he's Alex Avila. But uh, that's his godson. So I listened to that. And just um, my fiance's, my fiance Dina, her grandfather is a huge Dodger man. He loves Tommy Lasorda. So I got, I, you know, he talks to me about Tommy all the time. But just, just learning more about Tommy and his legendary career. You know, not many managers are, are pitchers in, major, you know, in their careers. And that's what Tommy was. You know, he pitched one year with the Kansas City A's in the late 50s. But he, he was in baseball forever as a minor league manager and taking over the Dodgers. You know, he had Ron Say and, and Steve Garvey, our good friend. And, you know, he coached Dave Stewart or managed Dave Stewart. And, you know, he had so many guys, Kirk Gibson, you know, guys that people don't want to hear about Gibson's name. But this little sort of just full of life, full of energy. He's one of those managers you mentioned. You're not going to see a guy like him again. Just that that youth and that, you know, so much enthusiasm even for an older manager. And one of my favorite quotes I think I saw from him was when his wife, Joe, would complain you love baseball more than you love me, he would say, yeah, but I love you more than football and hockey. So <laughs> I, I just – there's just so many good quotes from him. It, you know, baseball lost a true ambassador to the sport. And, you know, 93 years old, it was great that you got to see the Dodgers win one more World Series. And, you know, uh, I'm glad we're able to remember a guy like uh, – you know, a manager like him because he, he impacted baseball so much. And his – probably his fondest – his finest moment might have been when he coached the uh, 2000 U.S. Olympic team to the gold medal, and he knew literally nobody on the team when he took over. I will never forget being at Candlestick Park and Tommy would, because remember, the way Candlestick worked, the clubhouses, so the Giants clubhouse was on the first base side. So they could just walk from their clubhouse down into the dugout. Now, so essentially... Down the right field line was the two clubhouses. So the clubhouse for the opposing team and the clubhouse for the Giants, they were only like 10 yards apart. The doors faced each other. But the opposing team would have to walk down this long hallway down the right field line to then come down the right field line to get into the third base dugout, which is where the opposing team would be. And Tommy would come out and giant fans would go nuts. Because it was like the only time the Giants would have fans at Candlestick Park was when they played the Dodgers. And there'd be a ton of Dodger fans. There'd be a ton of Giants fans. And they would boo Tommy Lasorda and he would blow kisses to the Giants fans. It was hilarious. I mean, he played the part. He got it, you know. I I I I know he wasn't. Not everybody loved Tommy Lasorda, and there were times I guess he was kind of tough to deal with. But you know, when the when the Dodgers came to town to take on the Giants, you know, we didn't have interleague play at that time, and I, I've been at a couple of those games, and there's fights in the stands, and it was ugly, and it would be, you know, it's a one time they'd fill candlestick is when the Dodgers came to town. Tommy Lasorda would just, oh, my God, the way he'd play it up with the Giants fans was uh, pretty hilarious. I mean, like, he was a star manager. I don't know how many, I mean, how many managers in today's baseball would be in an opposing stadium 
and blow kisses to the fans. I don't – can you imagine Bob Melvin in Houston throwing kisses <laughs> to the fans? It's not happening. It'll be kind of funny. And that, and that was Tommy Lasorda. So we've had a lot – we haven't had a lot going on in baseball, but there's some interesting rumors out there. And they all seem to somehow, as, as you said, Cody, everything's going to go around the Mets this offseason – Chris Bryant, can you imagine if they actually trade for Chris Bryant and you just stacked your left side of your infield with Francisco Lindor and Chris Bryant? You know, some teams are going for it. You know, there's a lot of teams that are sitting on their hands, but there's a couple teams that that are not. I mean, I don't know where the Padres are getting all this money, but there's rumors now that the Padres are going to sign – uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. for over $300 million. So they already got a $300 million contract with Manny Machado. They've got, I don't know, Hosmer's was like 145 something like that. And now you're going to add another $300 million contract? I mean, you're eating the money with Hugh Darvish. You're eating the money with Blake Snell. And now you're going to have another $300 million contract with Fernando Tatis? Good for them. I think that the teams that are, are are going for it should be applauded. I mean, that's going to be, to me, I mean, you're able to get Chris Bryant. I mean, the, the, obviously, the Chicago Cubs are, are in a fire sale. It, it's kind of hard to believe, but they are. Yeah, and, and Wilson Contreras is the other guy that keeps getting circled around in trade talks, and you know, I think I kind of mentioned briefly last week that, oh, my God, like the Angels could go after him because of his relationship with Joe Madden and just what the Angels need, another another offensive piece when they have no pitching. And I literally just saw a tweet come up from one of the Angels beat writers. Hey, I checked in with the Angels GM, Perry Manasian, and, and asked him how his search or starting pitching was going. Uh, spring training starts in a month. And it's like, yeah, they have Dylan Bundy, and that's really about it. So I don't know if Wilson Contreras is the guy, but, yeah, Chris Bryant – a rumor that came out earlier, I saw that the, apparently the Blue Jays have checked in on him now. Uh, man, can you imagine him in the infield with uh, Bichette, Biggio, and I'm going to draw a blank on uh, Rowdy Telez is their first baseman, if I'm not mistaken, or Vlad Guerrero Jr. So that's, I mean, his name's everywhere. The Cubs essentially are just trying to, it's not going to be a full rebuild like they did when they before they won the World Series, but they're totally trying to uh, get rid of some cash. because. But it's going to be hard with Brian because he's going to make close to $20 million this year. And he always going to be a free agent, and he had a really bad 2020 season. You know, you, you mentioned the Angels. So I still get Sports Weekly, which years ago used to be Baseball Weekly, but they went to all sports. It's put on by the uh, USA Today. And each week they're covering certain teams. And this past edition I got in front of me, uh, it's called the MLB Offseason Report, and this week in the – well, I got it last week uh, – is the Angels. And you start looking at their potential at starting pitching, and you just look at this and you go, oh, boy. I mean, the Angels – yeah, it, it's nice when you got Mike Trout, and it's nice when you've got all this talent. But I just I, – I don't get it. 
Like, their pitching stinks. Andrew Heaney, Griffin Canyon, Patrick Sandoval. Like, what? You're not winning a division with these guys. And then you think they still got Albert Pujols on the books. Is this is this the last year of the contract? It's officially the last year of his contract. Oh, my God. He'll be, what, I think he's 40. So, but you still have Rendon you're going to pay a ton of money to, and he's, you know, he showed he's, you know, he's worth it so far. Trout, you know, Joe Adele had a really disastrous major league debut season for, for them last year. Uh, Justin Upton, you're still paying him, and you don't know what you're getting. You know what you kind of just. We don't know what Justin Upton's gonna show up every every night. And then you lost Angelton Simmons as a, to a free agency, but you did pick up Jose Iglesias, and you add Rysal Iglesias to be your closer. But that's great. How are you getting to the ninth inning? Is uh, a big question. And Shohei Otani's not gonna pitch this year, right? You would think not, but who knows? I mean. I want, if, anything, I mean, if anything, they need him to hit. To, yeah, totally. He has to. He was so yeah, pretty. Like they, he, need, they, they need it because I'm looking at their depth chart. They even have Franklin Barreto on here on the depth chart. But I'm looking at the depth chart. I mean, you got Trout and you got Rendon. Upton's not the same player. Pujols is not the same player. I mean, you need Shohei Otani in the middle of that lineup. But – just looking at their starting staff, I mean, so, I mean, it, 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 they've spent so much money, and they have no starting pitching. I mean, that's the thing about the A's, where like, all right, we're going to see what's going to happen with short and second base for the A's. But the reality is, I mean, the A's know they're five, if not six. They know who their starting pitchers are. I think they're the only team in the division that you can say you've got legitly six guys. At least five. You know who your five is. Mariners can't tell you that. Angels can't tell you that. Astros can't tell you that. Rangers can't tell you that. The A's are the only team that say, well, I I can go to spring training and I know who my five are. Not many teams, I mean, no one else in the division can do that. A lot of them have other questions, too. Houston doesn't have a closer right now because, remember, Azuna's a free agent. Uh, Seattle's still building. I really like Kyle Lewis, but he's he's an outfielder, not a pitcher. Marco Gonzalez is a nice, he's a nice piece. They have some young pitching that you're, you know, they're hoping develops. The Angels, I don't know. Um, you know, I live with an Angels fan, and uh, – you know, the, Which I still – it's blasphemy that you live with an Angels fan. <laughs> it, well, it's just crazy because um, I think she's seen the Angels. I mean, two all, so all the Angels won the World Series in 2002, but Mike Chubbs in the playoff one time. But, you know, they – even she complains. She's like, we don't have any starting pitching. And I'm like, well, you know, don't – you know, better, you better call your guy Artie Moreno and talk to him about that one. But, yeah, the A's have six legit guys. And, you know, I'm, I'm still – I still think Puck is a closer, but that's just me. But I'll, I'll get, let you, you know, put him in there as a, as a starter. And you got to feel good about that going into spring training and knowing that, no, there's pieces on offense you have to fill into. But, you know, when you know you have six good uh, potential options for your starting rotation and, you know, some of the guys you have left from your bullpen, the A's are in good shape on that and that end where their offense they need to address. Like, the Astros have a good offense kind of still. Their core still there. But they have – I mean, Verlander's hurt. You have Granke and, like uh, – Christian Javier and uh, Framber, uh, Framber Valdez, and that's really about it. Yeah, it says, for the fourth time in 14 years, the Angels are introducing a new general manager. 
that's the the the, the 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 stability that you have seen in Oakland with Billy Bean, David Forrest, Billy Owens, it, it just down the line. It's just there's a reason why the A's win. And cons- and consistency helps throughout the system. I mean, four general managers in 14 years. You know, you look at the Yankees. Look at Brian Cashman, who's been there. He's basically hired a couple months after Billy Bean. When you have that kind of consistency, it really helps from the standpoint of building a team. By the way, Dave Stewart is now going to join us at 1.30, and we'll flip Himbo. We'll have him at 2 o'clock. Uh, let's play the audio. You know, Francisco Lindor has been traded to the Mets. He's 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 got one year left on his deal before he's going to hit free agency. Let's hear from Francisco Lindor. We all know everybody's talking about how everything it's comparable to Mookie. Mookie fell into a great situation. He felt comfortable with the LA Dodgers, and, and he made the decision that was best for him and his family. And I'm, like I said, I'm excited um, to be with the Mets organization and uh, continue to emphasize I'm not against um, a long term. I'm not against it. Um, it's just, it has to make sense for both sides. Uh, and, um, and I'm sure my agent, David, uh, will do a great job in communicating every single thing I, I, uh, I desire. And, and hopefully, both teams on the stand, and we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I'm excited. Just like every fan out there, I'm extremely excited for this um, new chapter. This guy's a politician. I mean, when, 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 when I read the uh, – I God, I was shocked that uh, I'm not staying with Cleveland full-time. <laughs> You're like, come on, man. They've been talking about trading you for years. And you were – they offered him money. That's the thing about Cleveland. Cleveland did offer him big money. He just said no. And for me, when I think about the Lindor situation, I I, I don't know where he could go other than the New York Mets. You think about the big players. Who are the teams that, 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 that have the juice that can – pay somebody over 300 million. The Yankees they're not they're they're not going to take him on. They've got they got all these different contracts they're going to have to pony up to guys. Red Sox rebuild. Cubs rebuild. Dodgers just paid Mookie Betts, they're going to have to pay Cody Bellinger, they're going to have to pay Seager. They got a bunch of their own guys they're going to have to pay. I doubt he's going to want to play for the Giants and hit in that ballpark, which has never been good for left-handed hitters. You know, you start looking around, Cody, and it's a really short list of teams that be willing to pay him that kind of money. We've heard Toronto, but uh, I think once he puts on that Mets uniform, I think it's a no-brainer that he signs there. I think it's going to be a Mookie Betts situation. I would say they probably you don't trade for Francisco Lindor without having the idea that you're going to open up the the the, the checkbook for him. 
I mean, I, I would bet it's I, it's like the exact scenario as Mookie bets that he'll sign some type of $300 million deal, whether it's eight, 10 years, whatever it is, uh, before the season starts. Yeah, the only other team I could see maybe getting in there on Lindor, and it's a stretch because, you know, they're in a really bad division and they probably don't want to spend money, but I don't sleep on the Cardinals when it comes to any major free agent going there, but I agree. I think the Mets is the only – the Mets the, – playing in New York with the Mets is the only – logical, you know, place for him to play. I think they're going to open the checkbook. Cone wants to make a big splash. You know, he already made the splash getting Lindor. A bigger yeah. splash is signing him to a long-term extension. So then you have him, Alonzo, uh, DeGrom, McNeil to build around. Syndergaard will be back in like June or July of this upcoming season from Tommy John, you, you're hoping, for Mets fans. You got Carlos Carrasco. You got Marcus Stroman for at least this season because he accepted the qualifying offer. You got Dom Smith, who had a great 2020, and he's you know he's starting to come into his own. Uh, they got a, a good future to build towards, and you know you got to compete against the Braves, who have a really really good and young and talented team, and the Nationals assigned Kyle Schwarber, so watch out. They're probably gonna, well, I don't know, I don't know if they're gonna win the division, but they'll be a more you know more competitive than they were last year after they won the World Series. But the only thing with Schwarber is where's is he gonna play? Um, he's a liability in the outfield, and there's no DH in the NL yet. The Marlins are probably going to take a step back. I hate to say that my Marlins are going to take a step back, but I think it's the only reasonable thing for them to do. And who knows what's going to happen to the Phillies. Are they going to spend? Are they not going to spend? Is Romilto going to be there? Will he not be there? Is Zach Willard getting traded for Babe Ruth? I don't know. Like, I don't know what's going to happen with the Phillies. So I look at the Mets and the Braves are the two teams to watch, and then the Nationals a little bit behind. But the Braves are still a favorite, but the Mets, they got something building there. And if they can lock up Lindor, um, that's going to be huge for Steve Cohen and, and his ownership with the Mets You know, year one. It, it wouldn't make – if you didn't plan on signing him, it wouldn't make – the, the trade doesn't make sense. I mean, if you don't, if you don't plan you, – you don't trade for a guy like that to take him for one year. You, you trade for him to extend him and have him be one of the – I mean, he's a face of the franchise kind of guy. You don't do that for one year. So I, I got to believe they're going to ink him up and – it's gonna there, there, there's an arms race going on in the NL East, and here's the other thing too. You don't leave New York. It's very rare, like a, a Robbie Cano, to leave New York. It's just, it's not smart. Being a star in New York, there's there's so much money to be made off the field than versus St. Louis versus like Robbie Cano leaving the Yankees to go to Seattle to the Pacific Northwest. I mean, he fell off the map. I mean, when you really think about it, Robbie Cano fell off the map because he left the, you don't leave New York. I'm just telling you, I've worked in professional sports for a long time and you don't, you don't go from New York to St. Louis, right? There's way more money to be had. There's way more money to be made playing in New York than in St. Louis. Then, I mean, it's just it's just a reality. I mean, you go to New York to be a star. Now, Reggie Jackson once said, I'm bringing my star to New York. But, I mean, look what it did for it. Look what it does for you when you go there. 
Was Daryl Strawberry ever the same when he left? Even to go to L.A. when he left the Mets? So I, I, I think that's a no I think that's a no-brainer. An absolute no-brainer. But there's only a few teams right now spending money. And as Eno Saris told us from the athletic, you know, there's still, you know, there's still front offices that have not been given their budgets yet. At some point, we're going to have a ton of signings. They're going to be flying off the board. It's just not now. That 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 will be very interesting to watch players. I mean, Cody, we're going to have so many people signing. It's going to be crazy. I know. And the phrasing we're looking at, you know, you know, we're looking at Bauer. We're looking at Springer, uh, Real Muto. But the guy that we keep talking about a lot is the guy you just mentioned. You know, what's it going to be like if, if he leaves New York? Why would you leave New York? Is, is David John LeMahieu. The, or you know him as DJ LeMahieu. Like, is he going to leave? Uh, there's reports out there he's telling his agent to start gauging interest with other teams. I think that's just a ploy for them to, you know, get more money from the Yankees or have the Yankees give him an offer that's worth keeping him. He was a good player in Colorado. He went to New York and elevated his game to a whole nother level um, to almost – I would say he's a very good player. I don't think he's a superstar, but he's in that uh, – you know, he's – if he had another good year and he was younger, he probably would be a superstar, but he's – I mean, he's the best player in the Yankees last year by far, I think. I mean, Judge was hurt and Stanton was getting older and, and injured and it wasn't a good year for uh, the greatest third baseman, according to A-Rod, Gio Urshela. Uh, you know, uh, Gary Sanchez took a step back catching-wise. So, LeMahieu's a big part for the Yankees, and they lose him. Then you got to put Glaber Torres, who's an okay, you know, fielder, but you're going to have him play, you know, short. But I, I just – I like – I like him in New York. I really do. And I don't say that often about players in New York, but I, I think LeMahieu and the Yankees just make too much sense for him to go anywhere else. Yeah, I just why, – why, 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 you know, we even talked about it with, with Ray Fossey. You, you, you just don't leave the Yankees. Now, if you're going to leave the Yankees, I get the Dodgers, right? Now, now you know, I, I would understand that. You know, you, you go to a Dodger team that, you know, is coming off one of the World Series and there's, you know, unless Slam Diego can actually step it up, I, you know, the Dodgers are, wouldn't you say the Dodgers are still the favorite in the National League? I, I understand that the Braves are good and I understand the Mets are getting better, but the Dodgers are still the cream of the crop. They've won the division eight straight years. Yeah, well, as your brother knows, I'm still taking the Dodgers even after all these moves the Padres made. So um, <laughs> I don't care if they sign Bauer, too. I'm still taking the Dodgers. I think the Dodgers are too talented not to be another, you know, back in the World Series again this year or in the, at least at least the NLCS with all the talent they have on that team. All right, coming up next, A's Hall of Famer Dave Stewart. Always a treat. We'll talk to him next right here on A's Cast Live. Streaming from the town, A's Cast Live continues with Chris Townsend. Well, when you think of a baseball life, I mean, Dave Stewart has, I mean, he's done it all. A player, a general manager, a pitching coach, an agent, television. Are we calling him or is he calling us, Cody? I'm going to call him uh, right now. But I mean, he's he, he's he he he's done everything. It's a it's an impressive, no doubt, an impressive resume of what Dave Stewart. 
inside the game of baseball. Like people forget he was the pitching coach for the Padres in 1998. And Dave joins us now. Dave, how you doing? It's Chris Townsend with the Oakland A's. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm doing great. I was just talking about, you know, you, you talk about a baseball life, everything that you've done from a, a World Series champion to a pitching coach to a GM to an agent. I mean, w- when you sit back and you, and you do television now, I mean, you've basically done everything in the game. When you, when you look at your career, I mean, it, it's pretty amazing all the different jobs that you've had inside our sport. I've done quite a bit, um, that's for sure. And but you know that 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 just goes along with just being really really blessed um, in the sport. You know, having good 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 communication, contact, and relationships within the sport. And you know, without stroking myself on the back, being a good citizen and being able to be hireable by by the people that that run the game, I've been real fortunate in that way. You know, I, I think about you, you coming up with the Dodgers, and unfortunately, we lost Tommy Lasorda, one of the great managers of all time, and he was a star manager. Uh, we lost him at ninety-three years old. What were your what, what when you look back? What what are your thoughts on Tommy Lasorda? What was it like to play for him? <laughs> it was uh, quite frankly, when when I started out in the game, um, he was the first major league manager that I ever had. Um, I came up in the Dodger system and having an opportunity to play for Tommy, I learned a lot. Um, I learned about playing baseball, as they put it, the Dodgers way, which I thought was a solid foundation for learning the game, the fundamentals of the game, playing the game the right way. Um, but I also learned that there's no fun in the game unless you're winning. Um, and so when when we as Dodgers were coming up in the game and, and playing the game, um, it's just crazy that, you know, a lot of people, they think that, you know, it's just a baseball game, but it's not just a baseball game. It's, it's, it's when you're playing a game and you, and you're, and you're winning baseball or you're winning baseball games, um, that's more fun than, than losing baseball games. I've been on teams that lost a hundred games with the Texas Rangers back to back years. And I can tell you this, it's not fun going to the ballpark it's not fun looking to looking forward to the next day of playing and so um that was one of the key fundamentals that i learned uh with tommy and you know and then the other pieces are just being able to motivate players to play the game every day um at every position strong communication that he had with us as players um it was it 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 allowed me to measure other managers that I played for and what level they need to be at because Tommy was one of the best that I'd ever played for. And, and I was trying to tell the fans, you know, like back in the day when, you know, he, he'd walk onto the field at Candlestick Park and everybody's booing him and he's blowing kisses into the stands at Giants fans. I mean, he was, he was, you know, larger than life. You know, he was a small guy. He was like a rock star manager. And I don't think he really... I don't think we have managers like that. No, we didn't. I mean, I tell you what, when I was in the when I was in the Dodgers clubhouse, which once again it was one of the first clubhouse I'd ever been in, um, you know, to to come in our clubhouse and be in our dugout, um, 
and we're talking early 80s and so some of the youngsters out there may not even even know about these people but you know to walk in your dugout you've got Don Rickles in there or Frank Sinatra you know you got uh, Tony Tennille and the captain of Tennille or Diana, Diana Keaton or Sammy Davis when you walk in your clubhouse and you see those those people in your clubhouse um, it, it's just unbelievable and it's a great feeling these guys are sitting in his in his in his office after the game sharing you know pasta and you know, listening to the laughter and, you know, actually understanding that they are in the acting field and they're in the top of their field, but they're admiring us, admiring us as players. Um, it, it, it was just, he was a celebrity manager. That's what, that, that, that might be an understatement. Well, and I'll tell you the, the one story that I thought was one of the coolest stories that, that I've ever heard is when when you brought up that you learned your great split finger fastball from you know Sandy Koufax, I I was like wow. I mean, you talk about star studded, the great Sandy Koufax, and that had just just the fact that you had him as a coach had to be amazing. Sandy Koufax, oh, man, he was he was the the difference for me um, in in having a, a successful career, quite frankly, and I owe that to him. Um, I, I was a I was a player that was moved from the catching position to a to a pitcher, and when I um, made that transition, uh, the first two years I didn't win a win a baseball game. Um, the the Dodgers kept bringing me to to instructional league, and my second year of instructional league, Sandy Koufax was there, and um, he worked with me and helped me to understand how to get in touch with my delivery and in touch with my body and knowing where my arm slot was. And, um, he was the, I mean, he was just great for me, um, as a young player and it didn't stop in, in 1977 instructional league. It continued throughout my big league, uh, period of time, uh, with the Dodgers, especially. And I'd get calls from him every now and then, um, when I was with Texas and with the A's. And so he was a huge influence on, on, You know, when I think of Sandy Koufax, I mean, uh, you can talk to it. I mean, he's so, for his greatness, he's so humble. It, it, it talked about what it was like just to have that kind of relationship with a guy that we could consider truly one of the greatest guys who have ever pitched in this game. I, I don't know that there's any any words for being able to sit down at the breakfast table with him in the mornings at Dodger Town or to be able to sit down with him at dinner time at Dodger Town, or for that matter, leave Dodger Town and, and go to one of the places in Vero and just have a one-on-one -on -one with him when I was having problems and trouble. And, and you're right, he's a very, very private person, very quiet person, but one of the most knowledgeable people that I've ever talked to about not just baseball, but a lot of things, sports in general. You know, he's a, a huge basketball fan, college basketball fan in general, but huge um, basketball fan. Talk to him about, if you wanted to talk to him about politics, which he didn't like to get into very much of that, he can talk to you about that. He was just a great, great person and conversationalist um, when it came to multiple topics. 
you know, I, I we got the national championship game tonight between Alabama and Ohio State, and I think back to your career, you had a you had a boatload of scholarships to play college football. What do you think it would have been like for Dave Stewart to go on and play football? <laughs> you know, when I graduated from high school, I was a five foot ten, hundred ninety pound kid, and I had no idea that I'd you know, grow to be 6'2", and, and eventually be 240, 250 pounds. Um, what I can tell you is that there was a, a lot of anger in me when I got on the football field, and I loved to hit. I was a, a linebacker uh, defensively, and I played offensively as a tight end. Um, but I love the defensive end of it. I, I love hitting. I love love the action of, of, of being in my position and kind of freelancing out there. And, and, um, you know, it would, I, I couldn't honestly tell you how I would have performed, you know, at the college level, um, or for that matter, if I would have become a professional, but I can tell you this, um, I played that game with just as much intensity as I did baseball. Oh, 6'2", 240, you would have been perfect at linebacker. <laughs> That's the perfect spot. You know, uh, I remember, you know, when we were when we were picking colleges, though, and it's tough to even imagine yourself. You know, I'm a 5'9", 190-pound kid going around and visiting some of the biggest colleges in, in, in the country. And when you're 5'9", and you're looking at guys 6'3", 6'4", 280, um, I just could not imagine myself being on a football field. And that was the difference in me going on to college to play football versus uh, accepting the offer of, from the Dodgers uh, after the draft. You know, I've been thinking about Tony LaRusa, and I know how close you are with Tony. And, you know, some people have said, is he going to be able to relate with the players? And I look back and go, you know what? Tony LaRusa, your, your guys' A's team in the late 80s, early 90s, I mean, you guys were rock stars. And when, when I think about that team, I mean, if Tony LaRusso can manage Jose Canseco and Ricky Henderson, I think I think he can deal with the modern-day player today. You know, I've tried to tell people that over and over again. And, you know, when he took this job, people were wondering, well, you know, how is he going to be able to manage these guys? And, oh, he won't be able to manage these guys. And, when you can manage, like you said, Jose Canseco, I mean, Dave Parker, though, a great teammate, and quite frankly, uh, was a guy that checked his checked his, his, his personality at the door or ego at the door, I should say. When you can manage guys like that um, and the different personalities on our team, you can manage anybody and you're going to be successful because, quite frankly, what players, res- what players respect is winning attitude and being able to help them understand how to win. And there was no one better than, than Tony at, at, at being able to do that. You know, I think for, for, for our younger audience, I don't think they realize how big the personalities were in the late eighties and how big, I mean, you guys, you know, Jose Canseco is coming out of Madonna's apartment in New York and Manhattan. I mean, you guys, you guys, you were one of the real first celebrity baseball teams. Just kind of educate our young fans of what that was like to be around. Guys are making $4 million for the first time. I mean, it was a, you were a star-studded group. 
<laughs> you, you know, I don't think anybody can even imagine. Um, you know, our team, we we played the game so well, and 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 the attitudes and the the athleticism, just the guys that we had on our team, opposing teams used to used to stay out to watch us do batting practice um and and you know walking through our hotel getting off our team bus it got to a point that we had to come in through the back entrances of our hotel um so that we didn't get mobbed in the hotel lobbies um we were a a group and you know, quite frankly, because you were living it, you just figured that that's what it was about at that time. We we just we really did. We just felt that this is what it's all about. Um, but um, it was unbelievable um, the attention that that the Oakland ha- that the Oakland A's had in the mid '80s and going into the '90s. I want you to put your uh, agent hat on because we got. I mean, we got over 270 free agents right now. It's it's January. These guys haven't signed. What advice would you give to free agents in this you know crazy time that we're in with this pandemic? Uh, I mean, you've just gotta in this crazy time. You've gotta you've gotta keep yourself. You gotta keep yourself as well prepared as you can it's a difficult thing to do because it's a it's a boring atmosphere to not know when you got to show up or when you're going to have to show up and what's even worse is you're not going to know what to expect once you get there i mean so the key to this game anyway is being mentally prepared to do your job it's not this game is talent there's no doubt about it you have to play this game uh with with a with a great deal of talent but the mental aptitude and having that mental edge is what makes you successful in this game. And so what I would do through this period of time is, is read as much as you can on the mental portion of the game, but also prepare yourself mentally to be able to do what you have to do when the time comes. Would, would you look at a scenario where, let's say if you're young enough where you just go, you know what, I'm just going to sign a one-year deal and hopefully – when we get to 2022, we're back to normal. <laughs> I wish it was that simple. <laughs> yeah, cause I, I, I mean, I feel I, I think at some point we're going to see a bunch of guys come off the board. I mean, because at some point there's going to be spring training, but it's just it's it's got to be very frustrating as a free agent to be sitting here in January without a job. You know what though, the free agents should be they should be by all right used to what's what's going on here. Because free agents, the free agent market it's it's been different for a while and, and the top tier guys were getting signed and were, were being were being uh, moved on, you know, but you're looking at a period of time now where players were they were waiting until, you know, almost spring training and some weren't being signed until spring training. Um, so I don't know that, that you, you should look at this period of time in any, in, in, a, in a different way. I mean, what may take place and we saw a, a, a little bit of a sign of it earlier is that guys are doing one year deals um, because in a short season, it's tough to really grasp what your value is. And so to do a one year deal and then come back next year, 
Um, I expect to see a lot of that in this market. Once again, you're going to have some top tier tier guys that are going to sign multi-year deals for some pretty good money, but I'm expecting to see a lot of one-year deals and a lot of late signings. But the late signings, in my opinion, are usual for the, the temperament of baseball today. You know, let's end on this. Uh, and I don't think that this 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 club and now the Toronto Blue Jays are talking about spending a lot of money and they got you know they got a bunch of kids on their ball club their, their dads were, were big leaguers and great players but the team that you played on the Toronto Blue Jays is truly the talent it's one of the best teams we've ever seen and and I don't think that team really gets credit when we talk about great teams of all time I'm I'm sorry I missed that you don't what we, we don't what? I, I the, the, the Toronto Blue Jays teams that you played on, I think, and I'm remembering back, one of the great teams of all time, and it really doesn't get that credit. Well, you know, the the 93 team, I mean, we were we were a really, really good team. I mean, we had we had Robbie Alomar, Paul Olerud, I mean, a John Olerud and Paul Molitor were the one, two, and three hitters in in the American League, which tell me when you're going to see that again. Um, You know, Joe Carter, who, in my opinion, is a Hall of Famer, never missed an opportunity to drive in a run from third base um, and had, I think it was 10 straight 100 RBI seasons. Um, Tell me when you're going to see that again. And then when you, you think about, you know, a staff that, that included Jack Morris, I mean, Jack Morris was, was an unbelievable competitor in his time. He's a hall of famer. Now, um, Pat Hinton was a rookie that year and he eventually went on to win a Cy Young, Stottlemyre, myself and Juan Guzman. Um, we had, uh, John Henke and Dwayne Ward on the back end of our bullpen, not to mention Danny Cox as a setup guy. I mean, that team could very well compete, in my opinion, with some of our, our great ace teams. If you pick pick the best ace team, uh, that team could probably compete with that team. Yeah. And so it, the 93 Blues Jays team was, in my opinion, was loaded. And then in 92, they won a championship. I wasn't a part of that team. I tried to keep them from winning a championship. But the 92-93 uh, Blue Jay teams were great baseball teams. Hey, it is always an honor to have you on the program. We, we we appreciate your time. Stay safe down in San Diego, and we'll talk soon. Thank you for having me on. Take care, Chris. The great Dave Stewart here on A's Cast Live. Think about everything he's done in baseball. He's a World Series MVP. He's a three-time World Series champion. He was a great pitching coach. He's a GM. He's an agent. I mean, what does he have left to do? Be a manager or the commissioner of baseball? I mean, Dave Stewart's had, you know, they they do a great job, NFL Network, with a football life. Maybe we need to talk to some of our friends at MLB Network to start doing a baseball life. Like, how good would the baseball life be of Dennis Eckersley? I mean, you think about X career and everything X went went through, what he's overcome to become a Hall of Fame pitcher. Eck would be a great baseball life. Our 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 very good friend Raymond Fossey would be a part of that. Uh, Dennis, uh, um, so Eckersley, I think 
Dave Stewart. I mean, obviously McGuire, everything that he went through. Um, Canseco. Canseco would be fascinating to watch the highs and the lows of Jose Canseco. I mean, you could take all these former A's and do a baseball life, and I guarantee you they would be fascinating. And you know what? For our younger fans, when I was in high school, the A's were the cream of the crop. When you're a high school baseball player, like the A's were it. They were in three straight World Series. The A's were the biggest team. They were the best team. It's shocking. Like the other day, did I text you, Cody, the other day they were playing the, uh, they were remembering the 1990 Cincinnati Reds? Yeah, you did. Like it, it's literally, I was watching that and I remember, I remember, how did they sweep the A's? The A's were the favorite in all three. You know, if the A's would have just won one more of those World Series, they would have been looked at like as a dynasty team. I mean, they, 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 that team should have won like five, six World Series. They had so much talent. Yeah, that, and that's, that's and that's the thing. Like, you know, bringing up Tony Larusa, as he mentioned, you had huge personalities: Dave Parker, the Cobra, Jose Canseco, Ricky Henderson. You can't tell me Eck wasn't feeling himself during those times. I mean, they had massive personalities. Massive. They had the biggest personalities in the game. Tony's going to do your, your, your good friend. Uh, Tony uh, LaRusso will do just fine in Chicago. Yeah. I mean, they got a nice team and I mean, I get where that narrative is where they're saying how he can't relate to younger players. And remember we played the audio of Adam Eaton hanging up on, hanging up on the Chicago radio station. when they asked him that question, uh, I, I think Tony will be fine. I, I, w- I want to see it, though, because Tim Anderson is a very colorful player, and he's really good, and, you know, he likes to bat flip. And those go- the, the, a lot of those guys in the White Sox have a lot of fun, and baseball is different than when Tony managed the Cardinals. Wait, wait. Did, did, did you ever watch Ricky Henderson? Oh, yeah, totally. But I'm just saying it's, 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 a, it's a league-wide thing now. It's, it's where- Jose, Canseco watch- Jose Canseco watched home runs. Let's not forget Ricky Henderson would hit the home run and he's picking his jersey. He managed those guys. That's 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 what I like people only want to remember Tony LaRusso as the St. Louis manager. When he was in Oakland, Dennis Eckersley's pointing at you as he's closing you out. What what was that thing I told you the other the other day when we talked? Tony's managed a guy that was born in 1925, and he's now going to manage a guy that's born in 1999. <laughs> Is Dave Stewart a Hall of Famer? Well, I pull, so I'll, I'm going to pull up his page because I pulled up uh, Joe Carter, and Joe Carter did have a lot of phenomenal oh, years. Joe Carter was an RBI machine. He did 1,400. And hit. And hit, and hit. It literally, it's one of the greatest home runs and one of the greatest calls of all time. Touch them all, Joe. You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. I remember that call, too, and, you know, just from going back and listening to it. And, you know, he had 1,445 RBIs in his career, over 350 career home runs. He's only a 259 career hitter. What do you think his war is? Joe Carter, that is, not not Dave Stewart. 
I'd say he's in the 50s. Not even close. Joe really? Carter's career war is 19.6. How is that possible? Uh, I don't. 19.6, uh, 2,184 career hits, 396 career homers, uh, 1,170 career runs scored, 1,445 career RBIs, a career 771 OPS, and a 105 OPS plus. 230 stolen bases. How can you play that long and it's only 19? He must have been a really, I don't know, where's his defense at? I mean, we didn't really, I mean, I mean, he had one year where he had double-digit errors playing first base, but that was in 1987. Uh, I don't know, he, it didn't seem like he was that bad of a fielder. I don't know. See, war is hard to calculate, I guess. No one, no, no one, is there a per, could anybody actually explain how war works? Sarah, probably. I mean, to break it down like this, it's a calculation, right? It's a math. It's a it's a math deal. How is it calculated? I'm looking at Dave Stewart. He was 26.5, but yet he had 168 wins. Yeah, remember he didn't get his first. Remember what he said he didn't, he didn't get his first win until 1981. <laughs> he debuted in 1978. <laughs> Let me ask you this: Dave Stewart in his career. 10 and 6 with a 2.77 ERA in the postseason. Now, I want you to remember, as a Dodger, he was 0 and 2. So, two of those losses came when he was young. So, I look at him more as 10 and 4 with a 2.77 ERA. I mean, he was unbeatable. You look at old Dave Stewart, he was unbeatable in the postseason almost. I'm just, As he was 31, 32, 33, I mean, I don't know. Just look at him from, from 87 to 1990, so a four-year stretch. He won over 80 games combined in four years. Now, I know there's people who don't care about wins. That's pretty impressive to win 20 games Somebody, a year. Hey, for all those guys that say, I don't care about wins, somebody's got to win the game. Yeah, 200. Somebody's get the win. He led the league in innings twice in that four-year stretch, and one of them he had 275 and two-thirds innings. Okay, so I'm I'm now on his baseball reference page, all right? So Dave Stewart from 1987 to 1990 won 20 games. It was 20, 21, 21, and 22. But here's the kicker. 37 starts in 1987, 37 starts in 1988, 36 starts in 1989, 35 starts in 1991, 31 starts in 1992. When's the last time you've seen you've seen someone throw thirty seven times? In current baseball, well, that's not allowed. So you're lucky if you see a guy go thirty four innings. Now we're, we're look at this way: we're talking, and no offense to our good friend Trevor Bauer, we're talking about a guy that threw what he had eleven starts last year because he didn't pitch his last game. He had eleven starts, and he's looking for forty million dollars a year after that season. And Stu's going out there throwing thirty seven, thirty six. Yeah. I mean, I know baseball is completely different now, and we have a different emphasis on pitching, but how valuable is that? How valuable is it for a guy to throw 37 times for you and win 20-something games? Yeah, that's uh, that, that winning percentage is pretty high if you do the math. Like, you can't deny, like, even sabermetrics people, if you go back and you look, he's given you 270 innings. He's given you 37 starts. He's winning the majority of these starts. 
I, there's major value. Like it was be it'd be interesting to get David Forrester, Billy Bean on to say, um, what what would he be worth now? I think the biggest knock that that people probably have with Stu is uh, maybe because he didn't strike out. He wasn't a big strikeout guy, but it didn't matter. He won games. And back in the day, that was a big, I mean, it's always important to win, but back, you know, that's back when everyone had the huge emphasis on wins where I know everyone, I'm one of those guys that's like that now, but like, I'm not going to be one of the people that completely just says those guys back then, no one cared. It was a major part of how we evaluated pitchers back then. And he won 20 games four years in a row. Well, here's the problem with strikeouts. You're not going to have big, you're not going to, you're, you're not going to have big, big innings. That's the problem. Everybody being a max max out guy, they don't they don't have big they 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 don't have you know. I mean, think about it. These guys that are going out there and they're all trying to throw a hundred miles an hour, they're going how many innings in a season in a regular season? How many innings are these guys going? They can't even. We can't even get guys to go two hundred innings. Yeah, when Garrett Cole led the league in strikeouts in twenty nineteen at the Astros at age twenty eight. He had 326 strikeouts. He threw 212 innings. Uh, he started 33 games. So who who's who's more valuable, Dave Stewart, who wins 20 games, throws 275 innings, and pitches 37 times, or Garrett Cole, who pitches far less innings, doesn't win as much. Who 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 who's more valuable? See now, this is tough because you're. You're doing this in a small sample size, I think, with with both of them. Because are you talking about Stu for four that four year stretch or just that one year compared to Cole's year? Because I, I I would have to take I, no no offense I would have to take Garrett Cole because he he won twenty games that year too. But and he it, only pitched two hundred fourteen innings. But he won just as many games and less game and less games started. So he'd be more valuable because if he got to pitch more games, if they let him pitch more games, who knows That's what he do? How could you see it that way? If a guy throws 275 innings, that's less innings on your bullpen. No, also true, but he also started four more games also. Yeah, I mean, I, I so guess, more, the more you play, the more valuable you are. I, I would, just, But I'm just looking at it from the numbers we have. I'd have to take Garrett Cole because of the strikeouts. I mean, what that year, Stu had, Stu had the 275 innings. He had 100 and – he had 205 strikeouts. Cole had 326. No, sorry, he had 192. Cole had 326. Take uh, take the year, the first year he won 20. He pitched 261 and a third innings, struck out 205. That's pretty good. I mean, the 205, that's how I say we did. 13. See, the, the thing for me with Garrett Cole as an Astro was, and if you listen to the pregame show I, and the postgame show, I said it multiple times. What do you need to do with Garrett Cole? Get through six innings, and he's going to be out of the game. It was a three-inning game. He's going six, maybe five. Like, I, we'd have to go back and look it up. How many times did Garrett Cole even get into the seventh inning against the A's? It wasn't a lot. Well, I can pull up his game logs. I'm on his page. That was 20, let's just do 2019. His career-setting year, they gave him the 300 and whatever million-dollar contract he got from the Yankees. No, uh, don't do his Yankee year. You do no, no, his I'm, last I'm, yeah, I'm doing year. I'm doing 2019 the okay. year that before he went to the Yankees. Uh, his first start against the A's would have been on June 2nd. 
He went six innings, struck out four, gave up two runs. He threw 104 pitches. His next start against the A's was on July 22nd. He went seven innings, gave up one run, struck out 11 on 106 pitches. That's that's a pretty good effort. That's pretty good. Uh, let's see. That was July. Um, his next one, and that was he only had two starts against the A's in 2019. That doesn't sound right, but I mean it could be. Yeah, it looks like he only had two starts: June 2nd and July 22nd. There was only two starts against the A's in 2019. But yeah, there. I, I, my my whole thing with Cole is the odds are he's going six, so it basically is a three inning game. You just stay neck and neck and get into the bullpen, and they didn't have Osuna then. Twenty nineteen, they traded for. They would have had him. No, they traded for him, but that was during this at some point during the season. Remember, he was a he was a deadline deal. Yeah, I think it was the year before though is when they got him. I'd have to look. Yeah, I had to go back and look. But yeah, I'm look I have Cole's innings, the six innings. He had a lot of six inning starts. His least the least amount of the least amount of uh innings he went that year was he went four and a third in a game against the Rangers and he gave up no well, I mean he gave he gave up uh eight runs, so that's the only reason he went four and a third. But every other game was at least five or more uh for him. Cause I remember we were keeping track on that. Like how many innings was he going opposed to Verlander, because Verlander was just as good that year. Um, but he won the Cy Young over Cole, which I don't understand. But um, they were both fantastic that year for the Astros. And then Cole goes and gets signs the largest contract ever for a, a starting pitcher. Yeah, you're right. Ozuna got traded in 2018 to the Astros. And we're talking about 2019. Yeah, and he was, I mean, he was okay. I mean, he had 2.63 ERA. Um, 30, he, actually, he led the league in saves that year, 38. So he didn't have he didn't end up having Tommy John surgery. No, apparently he's going to go to Tanaka because Tanaka apparently has that same injury the with the like a ligament thing and Tanaka's has been doing he's done rest and rehab and that's what I guess Asuna's going to try to do. I mean Asuna's only what twenty well, he's only twenty five. He'll be yeah he's twenty five with twenty six in February, and he's on the market. I mean if you can give him a fly no I'm not saying the A's but because he has a really tr- uh, troubled past. Uh, but if you can get him on a cheap, if you're a team looking for a, a bullpen guy, at 26, I mean that's might not be a bad uh, bargain. That's kind of why the, that's why the Astros bought into trying to get him. Yeah, I don't know, man. That's just there's a lot of baggage with the player. That's why I kind of yeah, I would stay it's... away from. But his age and his value, um, if he can bounce back, is going to help your club. But. The baggage is something that you you can't overlook, especially he might he might be another guy too that needs to get out of Houston. Yeah, because he's a big part of. I mean, he was a big part of the whole to, the Tobman situation, but Brandon Tobman, yeah. I mean, it's it's almost like he needs like it, it's like. I bet they all wish they could get out of Houston now. I, you know what I mean? I mean, there's so much baggage with the Astros that. You know, you just you want to escape it, go somewhere else. You know, it kind of you know this is not the first time Houston. Remember the Enron scandal? Yeah, yeah. There's sometimes you just need to get out of Dodge, and you go somewhere else, and then you're not viewed as one of them anymore. Like that, you just need to you just need to get out. I think the only guy that, that I could see staying with the team and fighting by himself would be Carlos Correa because he kind of did that in 2020 anyway. 
Um, and I commend him for, you know, getting in front of it and doing what he did. Um, you know, when no one else was stepping up to do anything on the Astros, he actually, you know, took it full on and tried to, you know, play it off a little bit. But I'm, I'm, I give him a lot of credit for getting in front of everyone and saying what he did. And, you know, a lot of people are not going to like that. But, you know, he, he was the only guy on the team that would do it. And he backed hey, it up. Sometimes change of scenery is a good thing for you. What did we see this weekend? Who are two guys that were a part of a ton of scandals and they're now playing for another team? Uh, why am I drawing a blank on everything? Uh, they won a lot of Super Bowls. Oh, Tom Brady and uh, he's yeah, he's had a nice little run there and and uh, T- Tampa Bay. Gronk, Gronk, yeah, and, and TB12 have moved on, and now it's it's different. When you move on, it's a new slate, right? What do you talk? Spy gate, deflate gate, all the different gates that the Patriots had. Brady, Tom's Brady's Brady's winning in Tampa. If, if he wins the Super Bowl in Tampa, they kept showing that commercial by the way over the weekend where he holds up six rings. Six rings. He's played in what nine? Yeah, nine Super Bowls. How how fitting would it be that he wins the Super Bowl for Tampa in Tampa, and being the first team to ever be you know being the first team to host a Super Bowl and be in it, and it's him, and he wins again, because they put a graphic up earlier and it was pretty it was pretty remarkable. Like the average age of the starting quarterback in the AFC playoffs remaining right now is like I think like twenty four twenty five. The average age of the NFC quarterback. Is thirty-seven. Drew Brees is like forty-two years old. He's old. Brady. I mean, Rogers is up there. What's Rogers? Thirty-five or thirty-six? Yeah, and Jared Goff's in there, and Goff's not even thirty yet. But Goff's like the youngest guy. He fits closer to the AFC guys, and he fits in with the guys that are in their late thirties, early forties. It's remarkable. Tom Brady has basically played in a third of all Super Bowls. Yeah. What are we on? Where what are we at? Fifty one or fifty two? Uh, no, this is Super Bowl fifty. Is this fifty five? Well, Levi Stadium was fifty, right? Yeah, and that was that was five five years ago. Was, I think this is Super Bowl fifty five. Andre's close to playing in in a third of all Super Bowls. Yeah, f- this is fifty five. That's incredible. <laughs> it's nice. That's, I'd say it's a nice little run. Uh, I would I would say as Brian uh, as Brian Kenny would say on MLB Now, this isn't small. Uh, small, uh, small sample size, sample size theater. Uh, that's a that's a lot of success for Tom Brady. Yeah, that's that's you know that's the that's the you know that's like the thing about Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter was in the playoffs all but two years of his entire career. It's just insane. Like you can't even. Ted Williams only got there once, and Derek Jeter played there every single year he was in the postseason. It's unbelievable. It really is. I mean, it's just, it's just, you know, that, 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 I always go back to that New York thing. Look how much, look how much Mickey Mantle won. Look how much Yogi Berra won. How, how many rings did Yogi Berra win? I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's, um, it's, is it 10? I think it's 10. You just don't, you just, it's crazy. It really is crazy to think how much some guys have won versus a player who, I mean, Ernie Banks is one of the greatest players of all time. Guy never made the postseason. I mean, you are lucky. I mean, and I know, like, A's fans, because they haven't won since 89, are always like, it's great to get there, but we always lose. Trust me, 
getting there, it's an accomplishment. The fact that Billy Bean and David Forrest get you to the postseason. Because all I got to do is look at Cody's Pirates. And I look at a Pirate team that at one point for 20 straight years finished under 500. Cody's entire life, his team has been under 500. It's true. And then the first year they were good, I didn't live there. So I mean, it's it's you can't take it for granted. You can't take winning for granted because you never know. Look how bad the Golden State Warriors were so irrelevant. So I used to do Warriors pre and post, and I did it with Matt Steinmetz. And Matt was the beat writer for the Contra Costa Times. Matt would talk about how he would travel the country following the Warriors. And people would ask, you know, what, you know, you get, he'd get in a cab. Now we do Ubers, but back in the day, he just did cabs. And they would ask him, hey, what do you do? He's, oh, yeah, I cover the Golden State Warriors. And people would be like, where's the Golden State Warriors? What is that? People had no clue who the Warriors were and didn't understand Golden State, had no idea they were in the Bay Area and they were in Oakland. They had no clue. That's how irrelevant. Like the Clippers, who were rated the worst organization, at least people knew who the Clippers were. They didn't even know who the – and then all of a sudden, this new regime comes in and then they're the biggest thing in sports. And jerseys are selling in China like you wouldn't believe. I mean, it just goes to show how sports works. Like, no one even knew who the Golden State Warriors were. They're now, like, one of the most popular teams in the country. Yeah, it's uh, – I remember Sonny telling us – and Sonny was around some uh, pretty high-profile – well, some players were pretty big. But he was around the uh, the old Latrell Sprewell incident with P.J. Carlissimo – uh, it's one of the greatest first-hand accounts ever to hear of a story, something like that. But it's true. No one knew who the Warriors were. And, and then all of a sudden, what was it, five years ago when they burst on or six years ago and they won their first title? And, you know, they the, there are their diehard Warrior fans in the Bay Area. There's no doubt about it. The Oakland, the Oakland fans that love the Warriors, they've been here forever. But nobody knew who they were. Then Steph Curry's here, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green. And then you bring Kevin Durant in and Steve Kerr. And, yeah, they, they're on the map. But, you know, here, here you are. Um, yeah, that never happened in uh, in Pittsburgh with the Pirates. Uh, they had a couple yeah. years where they got good with Andrew McCutcheon, and then they stunk again, and they traded McCutcheon away, Cole away. Every, every, no, we're back to square one. They had one winning season since then, and that was I know it was a couple years ago. But So I guess in a good way for me, I won't have to worry about a 20 – well, we'll see. Uh, I won't have to worry about 20 years of losing again because it's only like two years now. But um, – it's just remarkable, like the success that the A's have had under Billy and, and David, and, the, and everyone has worked under him. Uh, so, I know, yeah, there has been the World Series rings, but be thankful that the team actually competes and gets to the postseason because there are fan bases that haven't seen that. Um, the Mariners haven't been there since 2001. Uh, you know, the the Padres have never won a World Series, so you got a lot of you got a lot of fans that haven't seen a lot of success. Cleveland has once since what 1948, so. There's been a lot of a lot of success here, and, and fans. Uh, I know they they appreciate it and they want more, but it, it's been a great run and it's going to continue. But you just got to be thankful because there are a lot of fans out there who haven't seen something like this uh, with their teams. Yeah, and I and and 
let's face it, Moneyball changed the sport. The sport changed. You have all of these young executives who decided on a career path based on Moneyball. You know, it's been a long time since the book came out. But if you look at all of these young, you know, they went to Harvard or Yale or Princeton and all these guys, we got all these super, super smart guys in the sport right now. It was the book and the movie. That's why That's why we're always relevant. The A's are always relevant. The A's were winning three straight World Series in the 70s. They had the crazy owner. The A's then had, you know, Billy Martin and Ricky Henderson in the early 80s. Then, you know, the late 80s, you're winning. You're, you're going to three straight World Series. You've got you know, the highest paid guys in the game. I mean, it's just the, the A's have always somehow, some way stayed relevant. And now because of Moneyball, you know, all these guys read the book. Every, I mean, it's just, it's the A's way. And they're always going to be relevant. And, and the thing that, the thing that bugs me and you told it, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a button that gets pushed and you did it to me earlier today. Was it Buster Olney came out with his top 10 or something like that? Like, we, this franchise gets no freaking love in the offseason, right? None from anybody. And then we bring all these dudes on, and the A's are in first place, or the A's are going to be in the wild, and they're all like, well, once again, it's happening. It's like, okay, then why don't you give them love in the offseason? Why? If you know the A's are going to be good and they're going to win, why don't you ever give them love in the offseason? Well, the A's never win the offseason. They win in season. Are you really trying to tell me that the Oakland A's, who've won 97 games two straight years and then won the division in the shortened season, are not one of the 10 best teams in baseball? Come on. Not a Seriously. Not according to our good friend Buster Olney. Who does he have over him? All right. Well, here, I'll give you the list. Um, I guess you can, I, I'm sure you can guess who number one is. It's gonna uh, be the Dodgers. Uh, if, who's number two? Is, is the question. I, I, if he goes Padres, I'm gonna be so. Bob Townsend's Friars are second. My God, they haven't won anything. <laughs> uh, three is the Atlanta Braves, who might be the second best team in baseball uh, behind the Dodgers. The, uh, yeah. um, I just the uh, I just uh, accidentally went past it. The Yankees were next. Uh, so you got Braves, Yankees. Yankees were four, and then five is I'm getting back down the the Mets, who were under 500 last year. They haven't played you're, yet. You're, you're telling me that a team that didn't even make the playoffs is rated higher than the Oakland A's, who have been in the playoffs three straight years. According to Buster, uh, the White Sox, who the A's beat in the playoffs last year. Jesus. Uh, the Rays, who were in the World Series last year, are the seventh best team, but they did lose Morton and they lost Snell. Two, two of their best pitchers are gone. Yeah. Uh, eight is the Minnesota Twins. They can't win a playoff game, but they are really good in regular season. Nine is the Washington Nationals, who, again, they signed Kyle Schwarber, but this article came out before they signed him, and he's not a, that big of a difference maker. They missed the playoffs last year. 
And number 10 would be the Toronto Blue Jays, who did make the postseason, but uh, they haven't signed anyone, and I don't know how they've gotten better. Just their players, the younger guys are going to develop. And then his best of the rest is the Indians, the A's, the Cardinals. The Indians? The Indians just lost a starting pitcher and their star shortstop. Are you kidding me? Uh, Level gone. So Uh. Indians, A's, Cardinals, Angels, Astros. I want you to keep this article. I want you to hold it near you. And we will bring Buster Olney on. Oh, I've been trying. and, (laughs) And wait for the season and be like, hey, remember when you wrote this? And the A's are leading the AL West and going to the playoffs for the fourth straight year. Yeah, there's he has three NL East teams in there, three AL East teams, and then uh, then he has the Dodgers and Padres, White Sox and Twins. So literally, no AL West team is represented in the top ten. <laughs> well, where does he live? Uh, that'd be the great city, the great state of New York, apparently. They're, they're, they're the, the East Coast biased. And I understand. I mean, the reality is our games don't start. A normal A's game in a normal season starts at 7.07. So our games don't start. If you're you're on the East Coast, our games don't start till 10.07 their time. And, of course, we play long games. These, these, these people who cover our sport on the East Coast, they're not watching. They're not staying up in the middle of the night to watch our games, Dodger games, Padre games, Giants games, Mariners games. They just, they just, they're just not. And that's why there's such a focus on the Northeast. I mean, they really they really don't give the Central much love either. But that's why there's so much focus in our sport on the East Coast because those are the games they're able to watch. They don't get to watch us. It's true. I mean, I lived on the East Coast. I know how the bias works, um, and how you know how who gets favored and everything and. But it's funny, like you said, you go halfway through the season, they call and they're like, oh, you know, the A's are doing it again. It's like they're doing it again. Here they are again. Like, like it's uh, it, it's it's pretty crazy. But I, I know we're gonna get to Hembo here, but we can save it. But uh, today something special happened on this date in 1973. Do you have any guess what it is? On this date in 1973, I'll give you a hint. The National League hasn't agreed if they want to use it or not. Oh, the DH. The DH is the rules of is uh, I guess what we, how we put it ratified. They put it in that they're going to use the DH. Do you know who the first DH over here in a game was? I'll, I'll do first ever and then first Oakland A DH. The first the the guy who took the first at bat at DH. Yeah. Granted, I was one years old at this time. I have no clue. It'd be Ron Bloomberg of the Yankees against the Red Sox and Louis Tiant of all people, friend of the, the program. Great Ron Bloomberg, who is who? <laughs> yeah. Do you, do, you want to, do you know who the A's first ever DH was? I'll give you a hint. He was on this program during the uh, when we did the re- look back at the seventy two, seventy three, and seventy four team. Oh yeah, the uh, the hitting coach. 
Um, no. Gene no. Tennis? No. Outfielder. Billy North was the first A's DH. Billy North was the first A's DH? Yeah. And then you, and then you, it makes you think who's the, you know some who were the, some of the great DHs in Ace history. Um, Chris Davis is pretty good. The uh, Cobra, the Cobra, Dave Kingman, Frank King Thomas, Con. your favorite Frank. Jack Jack Cust. Jack Cust. Frank Thomas was a great. You know, Frank wasn't here a lot, but Frank was a great A. Uh, Rubio Durazo. It was it was Frank Thomas. Frank Thomas was really tough to deal with when he was with the Chicago White Sox. I remember going into the opposing clubhouse trying to get Frank Thomas. He was really tough to deal with. And then he comes to the A's, and he was so delightful. I'm telling you, the change change of scenery for guys, because I remember Frank Thomas and Albert Bell were next to each other in the Oakland visiting clubhouse. And let me tell you, that was a frosty place. If you remember how Albert Bell was, Frank Thomas was not. He was tough to deal with. But then he comes to the A's, and he's a media darling. He was was great. I remember the first time Larry Kruger and I interviewed him. And um, Larry Kruger at KMBR. Frank stood up. Hey, shook our hands. And I was like, Wow, this is far different from the Frank Thomas that was in Chicago. Because when he was with the White Sox, man, he was not a friendly guy. All of a sudden, he came. You come to Oakland, you're not going to. That's the great thing about our clubhouse is, like, if you come in and you're 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 that guy, you're going to stand out so bad because everybody's, as Cody likes to say, loosey goosey. It's a fun clubhouse. You come in being the bad guy, boy, you're going to stand out. You want to get to Embo here? Yeah. All right. Earlier today, we hooked up with our guy. He's one of the top researchers, top producers, and television personalities for ESPN on the morning show Get Up. Let's talk a little Hall of Fame. And here's our our guy, Himbo, Paul Himbakides. Himbo, how you doing, buddy? It's been a while. It has been far too long, my friend. I'm just... It's really hard for me to keep track of all these transactions on this simmering hot stove, right? Like every single day, my – oh, wait. Never mind. I'm talking about baseball here. Can someone please do something so that we have something to talk about rather than just manufacturing topics out of the blue? I, 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 I don't want to I, – I don't want to, you know, bring this up in – and I know, but uh, your Philadelphia Eagles just fired their head coach. Yeah, that, that was um, – so I'm not exactly in the know, but I am sort of in the know – adjacent and I wasn't all that surprised by the decision it seemed like there was sort of a mutual decision for him to go like he wasn't all that fond of staying he wasn't dying to be there still and it doesn't seem like ownership and and the front office was in love with him either so look if it were up to me if I was the one making this decision I would have rather have kept the coach than than the quarterback but if they are committed to bringing back the quarterback next year I'd rather they do it with a new voice because obviously that voice was not going to work any longer yeah, it, it is truly amazing how professional sports works. Like you can, you can win the Super Bowl, you can bring great joy to the city, you can do all of that, and a couple of years later, it's like, hey, this guy's got to go. Yeah, no, <laughs> we have 
dude, this is we're Philadelphia. Like we forgot about the Super Bowl in week three of the next season. So like this guy, this guy was already on borrowed time. <laughs> I mean, people wanted him out like mid season this year. That's it. That's just how we roll over here, man. It's community. Yeah, it's 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 the city. You you literally had the greatest third baseman in history and didn't appreciate Mike Schmidt. It's unbelievable. I, I've done a bunch of Dick Allen research lately, and I mean the same goes for him times ten, right? Like sometimes the best we've got stick around the longest and they wear on us, you know, like, you know, you never, you never, you never fight with a, you know, a summer fling, but you know, when you're married to someone for 10 years, you, you find all sorts of things that you don't like about it. Right. So that, that's how Philly gets with their, with their coaches and their players. By the way, when he passed and we went over his numbers and you, you know, you're doing your, you're doing your research for your book, Hall of Fame. Yeah. 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 I, I was like, you know, you know, cause I was just a little kid when he played, I started looking at his numbers. I went, you know, did, did this guy deserve a plaque? I, I I know he was he was prickly to a lot of people, but his numbers are incredible, astonishing. From 1964 to 74, over the span of 11 seasons, he generated the best batting line in all of baseball. He was wildly under underappreciated at the time. Although I I guess like when you when you read sort of read things historically, like at the time, like. He was, like you said, not well liked in part because he was prickly, in part because the the right the writers were, you know, what they were. But it seemed like like history just chose not to remember him well. Like when he he came up for Hall of Fame uh, voting, he never received even twenty percent of the vote. Whereas if you look at some of his contemporaries, the Willie McCoveys and Frank Robinsons of the world, like his numbers, at least for a stretch, are very comparable. Obviously, the counting stats weren't there, but he's a player for whom advanced metrics do wonders, and I think it's very clear he should have gotten in with the writers and it's even clearer that he belonged in with the committees later on and he might have gotten in like the the sort of sad irony was that he was theoretically going to get in the day after he died so like you know this was just a terrible story and an unfortunate circumstance i hope someday he does get in but obviously what we would have wanted was for him to get in while he was alive this is sort of a a ron santo situation and i thought he was someone who was deserving and, and should have gotten in while he was alive as well you know one thing that kind of disturbs me is I want to judge a player on his career. Yeah. I want to judge a player on what he did in between the lines. And too many times now we're judging people outside the lines. And I think a guy, you know, I don't, whether you agree with his politics or not, and I don't know if you worked with him at ESPN, but Kurt Schilling had, a, had an unbelievable career and I'm not going to name who we just recently had on the air. The person basically told us they didn't vote for him because what he does on Twitter. And I'm like, wait a minute. Aren't we, are, how are we supposed to, aren't we just, it's like I covered Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds is no saint, right? It's like, how are we, aren't we just supposed to judge these guys on what they did as baseball players? Yeah. The best argument I've heard uh, as it relates to voting against Kurt Schilling is I don't like him. Uh, which is not good enough. It just isn't good enough. And here's my argument for Kurt Schilling. I think to me, he's, he to me is a slam dunk Hall of Famer. From the perspective of just his numbers, it's overwhelmingly clear he belongs. 3,000 strikeouts, and he retired with the best strikeout to walk rate of all time. He has a credible argument as the best postseason pitcher ever. He went 11-2 and two in the postseason and did so with different organizations. Um, I think it's very clear, very clear that Kurt Schilling, his, his resume, Though he wasn't Greg Maddox or Pedro Martinez or Roger Clemens or Randy Johnson, he absolutely is in the same class of player as Mike Mussina and John Smoltz and Tom Glavin, all of whom were in. Further, 
he's a perfect example of someone for whom this is a complicated issue. So like it is it is true that what he's done after his career, especially online, <clears throat> some of the inflammatory things he's said and done is are completely and utterly unacceptable outside the Overton window and almost no reasonable person would endorse him. However, none of those things had any impact on the teams that he played on. And this is also a person, again, a complicated one, who won the Roberto Clemente Award and a person who has raised millions of dollars for ALS. So you can't have it both ways. You can't be selective. If you're going to do the character thing, you have to take everything into account. And for me, you can have it both ways. You can vehemently disagree with his stances and his um, uh, social media activity and all the rest of it. Like, we're all there with you. But what you can't do is then ignore all the other stuff, especially considering these are things that all happened after his playing career. And there's very little, little evidence to suggest that he was anything like this um, while he played. And there's very little evidence to suggest that his teammates ever hold, held this kind of stuff against him and it impact any of those teams. To me, the argument against Kurt Schilling is much, much weaker than the argument in his favor. If we actually did the character clause with everybody in the Baseball Hall of Fame, how many guys would we, we be ripping down their plaques? Well, there would be there would be a number of guys. I mean, obviously, like the, some of the founding members of the Hall of Fame were segregationist types, right? Ty Cobb and Cap Anson and Kennesaw Mountain Landis. I mean, there are writers for whom have been have been convicted and convicted of terrible, terrible things. Like that, that's what makes that such a slippery slope, and that's why being the moral arbiters uh, uh, from the perspective of the writers is just such an impossibility. So you really shouldn't try because what you you can't do it without being arbitrary, without being subjective, without being sort of selective like who's to say that the you know the, the allegations against bonds and clemens and other steroid guys is any better or worse if you will than some of these domestic allegations against omar Vizquel and bobby uh, uh, Andrew jones right like we can't just pick and choose what we care about so let's not tr let's not try because you're, you're 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 then complicating an issue that is already very complicated and that's not a position that I'm comfortable being in. Like, if I, I, don't, I don't envy the writers in their position because it's a very challenging thing to vote your conscience there. And that's really ultimately what you should do. But if I were in that position, what I would do is, as, as best I reasonably could, evaluate who they were as baseball players. And if there are obvious character issues that have impacted the game itself and the integrity of it, I might take that into consideration. But everything else to me is sort of out of bounds and nebulous. You know, so we're in a situation to where, you know, we didn't have the, the Hall of Fame ceremonies last year. You still got Derek Jeter and, and Larry Walker hanging out there, you know, waiting for their induction ceremony. Uh, we did see fans at the Buffalo Bills game in Buffalo, not very far from no. Cooperstown, New York. Do you think we'll have a ceremony late July? I think we will. Um, it might have to be modified and socially distanced and all that. Like the, the days of, of, of packing that lawn when George Brett and yeah. Al Ripken and Tony Gwynn are talking, you're probably not going to uh, going to return. But I think we'll have something. I don't think we're going to have any new inductees, though. You know, that's to, I mean, the writers don't seem all that interested in, in, in voting in any of these guys this year. So it might just be the, the group from last year doing it again on the lawn with everyone six feet apart. But even if we get the chance to do that, it'll make me feel a little bit better. Yeah, how about that? We there there. I, I saw at least one guy. He's a first time writer. Didn't vote for anybody. It's like, I, I, as someone who's worked in baseball for over twenty years, why do these guys have votes and someone like me or or you, Vin Scully doesn't get to vote? I mean, it's ridiculous that we're so archaic and we're still allowing just writers, people in baseball. How does Vin Scully not have a vote for the Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, that's it's a good argument to make. Bob Costas would be another good example. Yeah. Because the, the layering of this has, has so evolved over the years, and the Hall of Fame has not. 
I get it. Like originally, the writers were the people probably best equipped to do this. But now that's not the case anymore. The game is nationalized. Like we have, you can watch every game every single night if you pay for the package, right? Like this is not a, this is not a thing where like entrusting the writers is somehow like safeguarding the game. Like that's, they're, they're, they might not even be the best people with, uh, to do this because a lot of them are so dug in this in with their own teams, right? Their own responsibilities. There should absolutely be an opportunity for others to vote. The Heisman is a good example. The Heisman has, has all sorts of voters, like a massive electorate, right? For, you, have, you have former winners, you have TV people, you have writers, like it's a massive group. That's probably a better motto with which to follow. And there's also sort of less woven biases because you're not thinking, you're not collecting a group of people all uh, coming, like coming in through the same filter. Like for me, like the, the hypocr- uh, hypocritical part of a lot of these uh, ideas is that these same writers were the ones who were glorifying these players during the late nineties and early two thousands when we all knew, or at least using your best judgment, there was something rotten in Denmark for lack of a better term. And now all of a sudden we care about this stuff. Like you can't, you can't have it both ways. And it's difficult for me for you to be enacting the character clause now when your career was je- je- you know, taking off in 1999 because these guys were putting up record numbers and you, know, and you were on TV and the radio three days a week with, you know, with all this good access. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I think the one guy that's going to change everything is Big Poppy. <laughs> right? If you're going to vote for Big Poppy and you don't vote for Bonds and Clemens, and what are you going to do with A-Rod? A-Rod has now become the face of baseball. I mean, what, what, how are you going to not vote for those guys, but you're going to vote for Big Poppy? I think that's where hypocrisy is going to come flying into baseball. And, and, and it's, it's going to be interesting. Because you're arbitrarily assigning essentially like your own flippant convictions across the board here. And it's not fair. Like it's, and, and there's almost no way to do it consistently, right? Also, the notion that lumping all steroid guys into one bucket is also dishonest. Like, Barry Bonds is something like three times the player Sammy Sosa was. The only connection they have is that they're steroid guys. Like, it's you have you have to have this conversation with more with more nuance. Like, you have to be able to see the full picture here. And given the fact that A Rod and Ortiz are going to be on the ballot for the first time, the year that Clemens and Bonds are on it for the last time makes for like the most fascinating case study we've had so far. Because, like you said, what you end up having here is like. An extru- like an, the opportunity for an extraordinary hypocrisy. I think what you'll what you'll likely see is is one of two things: P- voters uh, go for all four guys, or people abstain from all four guys because, and and then perhaps wait later on to do to do Ortiz and and A-Rod once they're no longer on the first ballot, and Bonzer Clemens find their way off of it. But that's just my that's my best guess. But I think next year's class is the most fascinating one we've had in in quite some time. You know. It, 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 I don't think these guys' egos would allow it to happen. But if we just said, all right, we're doing one big steroid class, right? Rafael Palmero, you're in it. McGuire, you're in it. Uh, Sosa, Bonds, Clemens, like all these guys who have the numbers to be. I mean, you got the all-time home run leader. Sammy Sosa's got over 600 home runs. Let's just put them all in at once and just – it won't happen, but nope. that was going to be the way to do it. It won't happen. And, here, and here's where I'll disagree with, with that perspective. Being a Hall of Famer is very different than the notion of not having the all-time home run leader, for example, represented in it. Like, I've been, I, I, I go to Cooperstown almost every year. There's plenty of representation of Barry Bonds. I mean, there's, like, 200 pieces of Barry Bonds in their collection. Like, you can't go in, into a room 
in the Hall of Fame without seeing his cleats or his balls or his bats or whatever, his, his hats. Like, they're everywhere. But that's very different than being a Hall of Famer and being represented in the plaque room. It's the Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. If, if You can credibly argue that based on the criteria, the character clause, even though we've, you and I don't like the, the, the way that people sort of weaponize it, that you can exclude those guys from your ballot. In my judgment, I can pretty, pretty honestly conclude that Sammy Sosa wasn't a Hall of Famer without the use of performance-enhancing drugs, right? But this wasn't sort of the, the, a sort of wild, wild west. What hurt Barry Bonds and Clemens, Clemens to an extent, too, is that they were just so much better than everyone else. I mean, they were putting up video game numbers. Had Barry Bonds hit 65 home runs instead of 73, and had his batting line look, not looked like a facsimile of, you know, your Little League statistics, then perhaps he would be in already. Like, the fact that they were so good actually hurt them. So that's sort of my, like, if I had a vote, that's how I would determine who makes it and who doesn't. Because it was sort of the Wild West, I'm not going to penalize these guys as if, as if they did something gravely wrong because it was sort of the culture. What I can do is take a, an educated guess as to what that player would be without steroids. And by looking at their career arc, for most guys, I think you can actually do it pretty easily. As uh, Commander Cody likes to say, it was a loosey-goosey era. It was <laughs> I believe that's actually the official Hall of Fame term. Uh, for the steroid era. <laughs> there, there's going to be a loosey-goosey wing, uh, especially built onto the edge of it, like a, like a tumor on top of the plaque room. Yeah, like, like I, so I've been to the Baseball Hall of Fame a couple times. Like, next to the bait, because they have, the only guy that has his own room is Babe Ruth. So maybe next to the Babe Ruth room, we do the loosey-goosey era <laughs> room. Uh, speaking of modern-day players, mm. How many guys, and I know you're studying this, how many guys do you think, like right now if you had to say, this guy's a Hall of Famer? I mean, obviously Mike Trout. Other than Mike Trout, who's a baseball Hall of Famer that's playing right now? Let's play the Hall of Fame game then. So I think it's clear that Albert Pujols will go in on the first ballot and have a chance to, to do so unanimously. I feel the same way about Miguel Cabrera. Uh, he, 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 both those guys seem to be like first ballot, inner circle types, I would suspect. Now, Robinson Cano had the numbers. But two positive tests, I think, almost yeah. completely ostracizes him and puts him in the in the Manny Ramirez class. What I'm looking at here is baseball. The baseball gauge does a Hall of Fame probability based upon uh, years played and WAR ac accumulated in relation to other Hall of Famers. And I'll give you some other guys that right now they have above 50 percent. This might surprise you. Smell test. Zach Granke, yes or no? Yes. Zach Granke, they have they have as a 99 percent, which I think is awfully high. But he's got a good shot. Yeah. Beneath him, Justin Verlander and Clayton Kershaw and Max Scherzer are all pitchers, all, all studs, all at 95% or better. Are you a yes, yes, yes on all three of those guys? Yes. Yeah, I think I am too. Next, they have Mookie Betts, Nolan Arenado, Christian Yelich. Okay, so these guys are a little bit younger now. Yeah, Betts, to me, Betts, to me, is, a, is on a Hall of Fame track. The other two have a long way to go, and I think Todd Helton's lack of love uh, on the ballot would give Nolan Arenado a tough time. He's someone who would probably benefit a lot from hitting elsewhere because otherwise I think we're just going to view him through that same prism. Yeah, I need to go back and look at that article uh, about Christian Yelich being better than Mike Trout. <laughs> Funny you should mention it. I actually received an award for the worst take of the 2020 season. Did you really? <laughs> for my article, I gave an official statement, and I told him, you know, in a nutshell, like, I am – uh, exceedingly proud and honored to have been given such a prestigious award, especially in a year in which the competition was just so fierce. And I am going to strive 
for an even worse take in 2021. Hopefully ESPN.com will, will ban me from their, you know, from their <laughs> baseball splash page after that ridiculous take. Although I will say that I think Yelich is poised for a breakout here. But this is what happens when you when you doubt the goat. Like you get absolutely slammed. I deserved it. Well, you know, I mean, when you look at someone like Mookie Betts, you you you, you say if a guy stays healthy, mm-hmm. and if a guy matures into his 30s and still can put up numbers. I mean, that, that's really what has to happen to be yeah. a Hall of Famer. You gotta, you, you can't fall off the cliff when you're like 32, 33. No, it's, it's one thing to be on the war track, but in order to get there, you have to be able to generate an, at least a representative amount of counting stats, right? Like you have to at least be able to play the game at a fairly high level through your early 30s and then hang on for a little while. The one name on this list that I do want to talk to you about in more detail is Francisco Lindor. They have him as an 82% chance to get to the Hall of Fame. And given the fact that he was just traded, my... We've talked about him a bunch, you and me, and I, I'm, I view him very, very favorably, and I think the numbers support this. This is a player for whom, like, the Mets acquisition of him, to me, is a, it, it, he's going to be the best ch- player to change teams this offseason. And we're living in a world in which it is very possible that someday he's enshrined into the Hall of Fame wearing a Mets cap. And, and the fact that there w- was it more of a fierce market out there for him actually did surprise me a bit because I viewed the return for Lindor at about 50 cents on the dollar. And I know that teams aren't all that willing to go crazy all in for a player for one year if they're not willing to give him a long-term extension. But among all the players across baseball right now that aren't locked up long-term, there are very few for whom I would be more inclined to give $300 million to than Francisco Lindor. Yeah, and when I start thinking about Lindor and the Mets, it's like a no-brainer he's going to sign there. Like, how many? There's only there's there's only a couple teams that have the kind of money that you can sign a guy for for three hundred million. And the fact that the Dodgers are are, are going to be out because they got to pay Bellinger and they're already paying yeah. the Mets. Uh, the Yankees are, I mean, it's, it's like, this is the one team where the owner comes in. He wasn't affected by the pandemic. Like I th- don't think it's a no brainer. He signed an extension with the, with the Mets. I would be willing to bet that he does so by opening day. It seems unlikely to me that you trade four players, regardless of the quality for a one year rental. And, and that's not a team. That's, that's a team that's sort of building towards something like he isn't the last cherry on top piece, you know, at the end of like an aging group of players, like the Mets have, a collection of really nice young hitters and then a really and obviously an ace uh, pretty young ace top their staff like the, he he's a building block like he is not a cherry on top type player i'm going to guess that, he, that they signed him to like an 8 or 9 year deal around 300 million dollars i think it's about market value like to me he is he is deserving of that and he's not a player for whom i would be worried aging badly i have used the comparison before and i'll use it again i think he's i think he's his closest comp is roberto alomar another player who aged really well who is so skilled and multifaceted, a player who plays in the middle of the diamond, who can hit for power, who can run, who can probably hit at the top of your lineup through his early 30s. There's so much value there. And signing him to a long-term deal, to me, is so much safer than signing you know, one of these corner infielder types like the Pujols or Avado to a long-term deal because you're not worried about the, the body going, the lower half getting slow, and becoming essentially a one- or two-tool player. Francisco Lindor, five years from now, can still be at worst a league average second baseman with some plus pop and be able to run a little bit, right? So you're not going to lose that value on the tail end the same, the way that you would with some other guys, whether it be corner types or pitchers. He's about as safe as they would come. What do you think is going to happen with Trevor Bauer? I think his market is is awfully suppressed, and I bet he's a little bit um, uh, upset about that because – I'd be willing to bet that he thought the Mets and the Padres were both teams that would be interested in him. Now, I suppose that there's still an opportunity the Mets could sign him, 
but I think it's unlikely given the McCann move plus the Lind Lindor move. And they, they just traded for Carl Carlos Carrasco, who's still a really nice pitcher, like a number two, three type in that rotation. And given how much they can hit, I'm not even sure signing Trevor Bauer makes all, all, you know, all that much sense. He might end up having to do the thing that he originally <laughs> threatened to do, which was take the largest one-year deal. And at some point, like there, there might be a, a, a real market for that. But the, 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 I think the, the original uh, report that I heard is that he wanted upwards of $40 million for four or five years. And I would be stunned, stunned if any team was willing to give him numbers that even approached Garrett Cole. Like the, he doesn't have the body. He doesn't have the track record. There's very little about Trevor Bauer's body of work that would suggest he's worth that. Right now, there there's, there are certainly teams out there that I would be I would guess would be willing to give you know three years and a hundred million dollars like that's the kind of deal I think he might come to expect. But this is just a, it's probably the worst time ever in recent baseball history to be a, a, a high quality free agent. And there are also some question marks with Bauer, both with his inconsistency and the fact that he does wear on people a little bit. That you know he's not like this like Garrett Cole had literally zero red flags. Trevor Bauer can't say that, and he's also hitting the market in a really bad year. Yeah, we're hearing that some teams don't even have their budgets yet. They're waiting to see how many games they're going to play. Are we going to have fans? We're not going to have fans. So, But at some point, you know, we have 270-something free agents. At some point, you got to build a roster. We're going to play baseball. Like yeah. we just said, there were fans at the Bills game. Um, you know, at some point, you got to start signing some players. Yeah, I think the way that baseball – owners work is very reactionary whereas the way that they work in the nfl and the nba is they're very proactive like in baseball you wait for your rival to do something and then you respond to it but if no one does anything then you, what you end up doing is sitting until march with nothing happening i worked on a piece last week with jeff passon for espn.com in which we like i <laughs> effectively by the way and it was fantastic thanks boss it was what i effectively did was like built a database to be able to show how suppressed the market was in relation to other years and through January, uh, December, the, the end of the year, the end of the calendar year, free agents had only commanded $204 million collectively. Last year, that number at that time was nearly $2 million. Like, we're talking about 10 times smaller than it was last year. And when I went back 10 years, and it was by far the lowest amount through the end of a calendar year within an offseason. So when you look at those numbers, I mean, those numbers are, I mean, like, we knew based on the, you know, the lack of headlines that, that dynamic was occurring. But when you see the numbers stacked on top of each other, what you see is a sport that is in a very unhealthy financial position. I get where the owners are coming from. Like this is a this is a bottom line business and they didn't make much money last year and we're, we, the the future of the of the the 2021 season in some sense is very uncertain at least in terms of how much money they might make. But if I like we talked about this like a month ago, if I were a free agent, I would be much more inclined to sign what would be traditionally considered a team-friendly contract, do so for two or three years, and hope that my skills haven't waned to the point where once the, the next collective bargaining agreement has come and gone, that I can sign myself a, a much better, bigger contract, at least hopefully. But what I wouldn't want to do is wait until March and just hope that someone has some money left. Like that, I would want. I, I would rather do what you know what Carlos Santana did, for example, and just sort of take matters into my own hands, knowing that seventeen million dollars is still enough money for me to put food on the, on the table for my family. You know, rather than wait for some sort of mega deal, you know, uh, hoping that someone pull, you know pulls it out of the sky. I don't know that that's going to happen. So the most important thing that we can talk about today: How is your Traeger? How, how are things going with your smoker? You, this is a very cogent question, at least uh, this because what I just did this past weekend was had a few buddies over. Okay, a couple friends came up and we smoked. We smoked all weekend. Like 
We grilled, indeed. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you, it's okay. <laughs> you're a Cali, you're a Cali guy. Anything goes. <laughs> I'm, I'm a tight wad from from North Jersey. So what I did was on Friday night did a did a pork butt and a, 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 a shoulder. Excuse me. Follow, just follow the Traeger recipe on 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 the app. And that bone, like I was able to pick that bone up, like 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 I dude, like I was like I was pulling a a piece of paper off the ground. It was unbelievable how succulent. I mean, I, I ate it for lunch today. So so soft. So juicy, so flavorful, an outstanding cut. Saturday, burgers and, and sausage for lunch. A nice, you know, nice light fare to prep for a massive uh, baby back rib dinner. I did three racks of ribs um, on Saturday afternoon. I would give myself a B, uh, probably overcooked a tad, but generally just absolutely delicious, delicious. And I mean, I would say the majority of bites I took were like 90th percentile ribs. And I'm talking about like all, you know, my barnstorming tours all over the country. Just outstanding. And then yesterday... Just did did drumsticks and I did thighs. Again, light fare, coupled with a couple pizzas. We really went hard this weekend. I'm still sort of feeling it in different places in my body. Not not so not all that great gastrointestinally, but look, I'm here to tell about it. And in the aggregate, you would have been very proud of the way that I hosted my buddies and whipped up all that stuff for them. So that's I mean, you, you asked a great question, and I, I think I delivered over the weekend. I I did spare ribs on mm. Saturday, and what I did is I just put it on smoke. And I just let them sit there, and it was like 168, 160, and they just sat there for hours. Oh. Then I wrapped them, so I, I so I, I put them in the foil. Mm. So I put beer in there to steam it, and I put butter, brown sugar, and put them at like 225, and just let them steam. You hear it? And and sauced them. Bro, this is I, it was like it was like I, I'm ready for competition. No, yeah, you're 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 ready for opening day. So <laughs> like, this is this is how bored we were this weekend as we were researching dead baseball players. So we're doing we're doing that. And like I, I, so what I used was I used the apple juice, right? I poured the apple juice in the foil. Yeah. And like I'm going out every half an hour. Like I can't even see them. They're wrapped in tin foil. I'm like, I'm gonna go listen to the apple juice. Like that's 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 where I was at this weekend. I'm just like listen to right like that's that was the highlight of my weekend. I just destroyed, slaughtered my insides. But I am, and I, but I love to tell about it. And I think you, you, you would have been proud. You would have been proud of my efficiency and, and all that we did. So I am, I'm certainly not, I'm certainly not a super user to your level. I'm, I'm not, I have not purchased a food truck yet to drive across the country for competition with you. But I would say that I'm closer to that than I am my current job. So we are certainly on our way. Yeah, it, it, way. it's funny when my wife comes out and goes, you have two. Tra- I had two Traegers going at the same time. <laughs> I'm addicted. Did you I'm addicted. Or, or did you like toss garlic bread on one? Oh, I did chicken wings. I did a tri-tip because you guys don't have. You guys don't do. Why? Why don't you guys have tri-tip? I don't get that. Look, I'm I'm, I'm taking it slow. I'm a novice still, and I don't have like the kind. Of, I don't have the kind of like. You know, I mean, you're making Oakland A's money here. Like, I got like the, I got the little deck, and I'm just I'm just making the best I can with my in my single family home. But I am definitely definitely grinding grinding my way up to the big leagues. So I I'm I'm confident that at some point you and I can get together and do this thing. Like, it's gonna be it's gonna be. Oh, a, we're going on the road. We're going. We're 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 gonna. You know, they got like these Netflix shows now. You and I, we're gonna go on the road, and we're gonna take on. And I was trying to tell my wife, I'm like, do you realize you want to eat at 630 and pork, beef, and chicken all cook at different times, and you want it all at the same time? 
and I made it happen. I'm, oh. telling, I'm telling you, when 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 this thing's when this pandemic's over, you dirty dog. We're going big game hunting. We're going after these these barbecue gods. I mean, we're gonna, Cody's gonna be gonna be in the crowd in, in Kansas City and St. Louis. He's gonna be interviewing <laughs> the people, slaw and sauce all over their face. It's gonna it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a show. Like it's gonna be a show. We're gonna have we might need we might need a, a mixologist and a DJ and and, and, the, and the whole thing because I mean, this is <clears throat> these are gonna be very well attended. Very well attended events, and as they said in Talladega Nights, we're gonna be hammered drunk. Oh no question, no question. I mean that your your A's your A's your A's Royals broadcast that day is gonna be a little light on the information side. Oh, it's gonna be so good. Before, All right, we gotta go before you go. Like I want to, I want to pick. The, I don't know if you're gonna talk about this with other guests today. I want, are you gonna pick the national championship game? Who do you got? Bama's minus eight and a half right now. Who do you like tonight? I'm so tired of Alabama. I just, I'm just, I'm, I'm tired of Nick Saban. I'm tired of Alabama. I just, I am. I, I, I know they're gonna win. Yeah, they're gonna roll. I mean, gonna... I, I watched every freaking bowl game. Um, oh, and Ohio State's impressive. Ohio State's got talent. I just, yeah, to, I, we, we've read this book. Yeah, we've read this book. Yeah, the barbecue's better in Tuscaloosa than it is in Columbus. Anyway, I, I mean, we hit, we hit on back to back nights like barbecue in Birmingham and Montgomery. So like the, those, those folks down there are, are still close to my heart. So I think Bama wins and probably rolls. That's, I think that's what we'll see tonight. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I, 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 I'm still shocked. Clint, I, you know, I thought I the, the Clemson losing. I was shocked by that. Yeah. Cause if there's yeah. been one team that physically and talent wise that can stand up to Alabama has been Clemson. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what Ohio, but Ohio State. I mean, they they got they, they obviously, and and you know the crazy thing too, I don't know if you buy this is the fact that they played less games. Are they <laughs> are they fresher? They're definitely fresher, and, and they're probably healthier now than they've been. I mean, they, they've had like twenty guys out with COVID, like the last four games they've played. So like, if you get the full gamut, like if you get the full team, like those guys that they have dudes. Like when you're watching them play Clemson, like. It was obvious which team was more talented. Like they had, yeah. like they're they're people up front. Like they're they're big people, beat up little people. And 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 Clemson and Clemson's guys look like the little giants out there. Like that was that was a stunning development. I'm with you. And Trevor Lawrence looked totally lost. Like he's gotten outplayed in like the last three big games he's played. His line didn't do him any favors. But Ohio State just trucked those dudes. I didn't I did not expect that to happen. But I mean I think Alabama's gonna roll tonight because that's what they do. Roll Tide. Yeah. That's what I, I like. I like him like 41, 31 ish, something, something like that. I mean, there's a path for Ohio State to win, but it's not a clear or obvious one. The first himbo of 2021. That's right. It was, it was fun, man. We'll do it again soon. All right, buddy. You're the best. Take care. Later, boys. Himbo stopping by A's Cast Live. What time does that game start? Five o'clock? Yeah, it's five o'clock, is what it is what it says. And, I don't know if I can stomach another Ohio team winning a big game in a 24-hour span. Um, oh, wow. Geograph- geographic hate from the commander. Uh, congrats to Cleveland on winning your first uh, playoff game. Uh, Browns fans, they deserve it. I'll get to them. They deserve it. On winning your first playoff game since Bill Belichick was the head coach in 1994. So uh, when you pl- good luck against Kansas City this weekend. I was happy for them. Uh, no, I am too. Come on, man! Cleveland Brown fans—they've had it rough. Yeah, they. I mean, do we, do we want to? How much time do you have? Do you want to go through every quarterback they've had since nineteen since they came back? Your team <laughs> left town. 
They came back. Yeah. Tim, Tim Couch, Kelly Holcomb. Those are the last. Those are the last two quarterbacks to play that were in the playoffs for them back in 2002. So Tim Couch out of Kentucky. Yeah, number one overall pick, Tim Couch. Then the next year, they had number one pick again, I believe. They took Courtney Brown from Penn State, and uh, yeah, those guys had a had both had hell of a career uh, playing for the Browns. I mean, it's really been since Bernie Kosar. Yeah, it's been a while since they've had a quarterback. Bernie was legit. It's a lot. Bernie was at, where was Bernie out of? Uh, Bernie played at the U. That's all about the U. The U, baby. Bernie Kosar was he was a good quarterback. Yeah, I, I was I was happy for Cleveland, man. I yeah, I I've been to Cleveland. I've been to Cleveland with the great Raymond Fossey, Heritage Park, where Raymond Fossey has a plaque out at Heritage Park. We did a interview out there, and then I didn't go to Johnny's. I went with with with, with the great. This is this story is the best. Uh, the great Glenn Kuyper, because remember, Glenn grew up watching Ray and his brother Dwayne play. So they always came down from Wisconsin to go to Cleveland. I went to not Johnny's, but I went to Little Johnny's with the great Glenn Kuyper. Little Johnny's is the bar that's in the back of Johnny's, the restaurant. So I've done Cleveland. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's awesome. I don't think I ever need to go there again. Um, <laughs> but pretty, I was I, I was gonna say bigger celebrity in Cleveland, LeBron James or Raymond Fossey. Oh, Ray Fossey. <laughs> oh, Ray, Ray Fossey's a legend there, man. I'm telling you, everywhere we went, Ray Fossey was a big deal. But uh, yeah, I'm not a big Cleveland guy. I so, Cle- I think Cleveland's a one and done. You talking for the for the uh, the Browns? They're not beating Kansas City. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Oh, the town. Oh, yeah, it is. It's. I've been there a few times for a couple of baseball games. I saw the Pirates play the Indians and Red Sox and Indians play at at Jacobs Field, now Progressive Field. Cleveland is very much like Cincinnati. It's a one and done town. I never, and by the way, Skyline Chili is terrible. I don't care what anybody says. Anybody try like. I could not believe it's basically spaghetti. Like, I always heard how great Skyline Chili was. Skyline Chili is pasta with chili. Like, I couldn't believe I'm like, this is not, you know, I've been to chili cook-offs. No one puts spaghetti in their chili. But that's what Sky, have you ever had that Skyline Chili? I have not. I've never been to the uh, what do they call it, the Queen City. I've never been. I've actually never made it to Cincinnati, so I've I never tried it. Was it. So, uh, I was like looking at, it going, what, "What's the pasta for?" They're like, "It's garlic chili." I'm like, "Why are you putting spaghetti in your chili?" Highly overrated. No offense to our friends from uh, from Cincinnati. All right, what do you want to do here? Let's get to Emo because uh, the great Scott Miller in San Diego. We're going to give him a call around three thirty, and Emo's like. Our conversation with Emo was like 30 minutes long. Are we, we going to be late to Scott? We should probably give people a, 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 dis, uh, a disclaimer. Uh, there's a lot of barking dog in the background, as Emo will address at one point. Here is our great pitching coach, Scott Emerson, right here on A's Cast Live. Emo, how are you? How's the offseason going for you? 
man, everything's going great. You know, can't complain. Uh, just re really anxious to uh, get back on the field and get back to work. You know, as, as seeing you on Twitter, I mean, you're 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 becoming like a media star these days. Uh, no, I don't know about that. It's just you know, I've I've done some uh, little pitching seminars here and there for people that I know, and and uh, you know, I, as you know, I love talking pitching. And uh, I love talking pitching with people I respect. And uh, I guess sometimes there's a quote out there every now and then, I guess. Well, as you like to say, hitting is timing and pitching is disrupting that timing. And, and you talked about it in that seminar. You know, it, 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 it doesn't change. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, what these guys need to be working on. Not everybody needs to just be sitting there thinking about how can I throw 100 miles an hour. you got to figure out how to get people out. Exactly. You know, a hundred miles an hour and the velocity will always get you, get you seen, get you looked at, get you in the door. That's why there's a, the, the catch 22 because everybody's looking for velocity, but sometimes, you know, and, and probably more times than not, when you get a young pitcher with really high velocity, you got to tone him down to get him to become that major league pitcher. You know, I've always talked about, uh, you know, we want uh, major league pitchers, not minor league throwers. And, you know, guys that uh, you come in with great arms and uh, off the backstop just aren't aren't conducive for major league pitching. So, you know, at some point in time, everybody's going to have to learn to how to pitch, no matter what velocity they have. Because if you just can't, if you can't throw strikes, you're not going to play for anybody, right? So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's uh, how you can make your strikes uh, up, uh, look good in the strike zone. How you can get swings outside the strike zone. And the velocity part will help you, uh, you know, margin of error wise, you know, you can miss a little bit more uh, and have a little bit more velocity than the guy throwing, you know, 92, 93, he throws it down the middle compared to the guy throwing a hundred down the middle. But then if a, if a hitter knows the fastball is coming in the big leagues, they don't care how hard it is. Yeah. That's something you, you know, watching that clip, and you, you, you talking about these throwing programs, you know, there's, there's all, you know, there's, they're all over the place now and it's all about trying to throw harder. Uh, the only problem is, you know, the, we're starting to see more Tommy John surgeries too. So it's kind of scary. Well, you, you know, that's what, you know, like I said earlier, the catch 22, if you, if you take the, uh, the long distance drive champions that, that are on the golf course, you know, at one time they were playing golf and they just, you know, couldn't make the PGA tour or any tour because they just can't score. They can't put up results, but they can hit the golf ball, you know, 400 yards. So what happened is they became long distance drive champions. And you just want to make sure that these uh, pitchers that come up throwing hard don't have that as their only tool. You know, uh, velocity is great. We all love it. But the ability to pitch with velocity is what you need. Well, you, you know, probably the craziest thing that we've seen recently is, you know, when, when Blake Trinan had his great year, is to have the velocity with movement. That, that's the one thing that you just uh, – it just amazes me. If you can throw the ball 100 miles an hour – and you can sink it at the same time. It's just a, it's a deadly combination. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, I always talk about elements of pitching, location, movement, changes, speed, effort level, and velocity. 
that never changes. You know, hopefully you can have two of the first three, uh, which is location and change of speed or location and movement. You know, the velocity is what you what you have. You know, you can only pitch with what you have velocity wise, but you can only command the baseball to a certain degree too. You know, some guys get out there, they throw it 97 to 100 and have no idea where it's going and you tone them down to 94, 95 and then tell them, you know what, when you're ahead of the count, maybe grease one a little bit more throw this one a little bit harder and then you can throw your sinker a little bit softer and that's a change of speeds and that's mixing up timing. Yeah. You know, and you think about grip pressure, you know, how much that changes and, and what players really need to work on in the off season. How much do you talk about grip with your pitchers and what they should be working on in the off season? Well, you know, not only grip, but, you know, hand action, you know, uh, how am I slicing the ball, my spin access on my pitches? Am I creating gyro spin on a breaking ball? Uh, am I staying uh, behind my fastball? Uh, you know, for me, uh, the pressure points were always really tough on the fastball, but really, uh, really good on your breaking ball. You know, how much pressure can you lay down on the ball on your middle finger to help create some spin. But, you know, we, we go out there. Uh, it, it's really tough in the off season because you're not physically putting your eyes on these guys. Uh, you know, that's why early spring training is always important. You know, I felt last year, you know, we were getting to the point where we were going to rock and roll with a lot of stuff during spring training. And then we got sent home and then we get back and it's summer camp and you only have, you know, the three weeks to get ready for the season. So how quick can you start doing things with guys? And then once you get into the season, you know, sometimes it's tough to experiment with guys during the season uh, when they're trying to make pitches and get outs because you don't want to, to alter something to get it worse. But, uh, you know, our guys are, are fairly smart and confident and educated. We had a lot of veterans last year. They understood uh, what to do with their baseball. And, uh, you know, last year, I think, you know, we threw the ball fairly well. And now it's, you know, this spring training, I'm, I'm really hoping that we get a full camp to where we can get some things and a little bit more things done. So when you look at starters versus relievers in the offseason, how much different is the program uh, b- b- between the two? Well, uh, the, the, the difference is, is in probably the number of, pros uh, starters and relievers are going to make their bullpen sessions this week actually was the first week uh, uh, our guys should be throwing bullpens uh, they given an off-season program that is blended with strength and conditioning and arm care and so when they show up they'll have 10 bullpens under their belt and then uh, they'll get two bullpens during uh, spring training at which you know the starters will generally throw a few more pitches than the relievers but a lot of it is individual based you know once once you get face to face in spring training about how many bullets you want to throw and then we'll talk to the relievers how often do you want to throw in spring training uh, I like relievers every now and then to, to throw a bullpen during spring training so some guys might throw a bullpen have uh, two days off throw a batting practice and then have three days off until their game starts but uh, in between those three days, they might get off the bullpen mound and get some work done. So, you know, a lot of it's talking to each individual, 
forming our own individualized game plan with each pitcher going into uh, spring training and uh, the start of spring training. When do you like guys to start throwing to get ready for spring training? Man, my dog, he's really making a a presence on the show today. (laughs) Got a lot of people going by the house. He always wants to be on the show. He always loves it. Uh, No, you know, we have a 10-week throwing program that we set out, you know, and and I'm all right with our guys playing what I call backyard catch, even even during the offseason. You know, you want to get out there and move the arm around and play catch. You know, catch is good for you, in my opinion. Um, Pitching year-round isn't good for you. You know, getting out there and pitching in games uh, year-round is, is, in my opinion, you know, harmful, but getting out and playing catch and throwing the baseball is very good for you. So I don't mind when our guys really start throwing, but we do have a 10-week scripted program, uh, script program for our guys with 10 bullpens uh, leading into spring training. Do you think that's kind of the problem with, with, with young pitchers today is the fact that, you know, back in the day we would, we'd play football, we'd play basketball, then we'd play baseball. And now it seems like these kids play year round. So if you're a pitcher, you're pitching year round. Is, is that a problem? Yeah, I, I think that's a problem. You know, the one thing that I, I, I don't like is the, um, you know, you're, you're pitching your high school season. You take three weeks off for summer ball. How many of those guys are staying in their throwing program, in their mound progression program, and, and building up to summer ball? And then you take three weeks off and you build yourself up into to, to fall ball. You know, some kids think, okay, I'm going to play my high school season, and then I'm going to take three weeks off, and then all of a sudden I got a game in summer ball. You know, it, it's, you know, our guys, you know, take um, three days off at the most for the all-star break because on the fourth day we work out so um or actually we actually work out either on the fourth day or on the first day we 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 go through a little bit pfp when we get back but our guys like to play catch during the all-star break most of them so they're still playing catch and it's only four days so some of these kids taking three four weeks off in between seasons and restarting and stopping you know I, i don't like to start and stop uh, if they if they you know pitch in high school and for three weeks they continue to throw a bullpen once or twice a week and play catch that's great but uh, I think the downtime uh, of resting and then and then coming back for another season and then resting and coming back for another season so you know I would just rather have these guys throw from from January to September and be done with it and we're at a point right now. Now, we still don't even know what the roster size is going to be, correct? Well, you know, I, you're correct. I, I'm assuming, you know, uh, if we start on time, uh, that, you know, we're going to have 26 guys, and I'm sure uh, if the minor leagues don't start on time, we'll, we'll carry a, a taxi squad type thing again. But like you said, I, I really don't know. I haven't been notified of, of any of that stuff. So, uh, but – I'm assuming the, the season's going to be, you know, on time. We're going to have 26 guys, uh, which you can have 13 up to 13 pitchers, and then we'll go from there. You know, I remember like two years ago talking to David Force and Billy Bean to where 
like you, you, you didn't know who your starting five was going to be. Like you just had to get, you, you had to go find starting pitching going into this season, 2021, you just won the, the American league West. How excited are you? The fact that, you know, you got your five, six guys, you know, who are, who your starters are going to be. How, how was that for you as a pitching coach? Well, it's always good because, you know, you sit back and you look, you know, uh, Sean Manaya has been with us a long time now. And, and so I've been with him a long time. Chris Bassett, since he came to the organization in 15, we've been together. So, you know, it's a sustainable unit. The, the more you guys can, can be together, the more the trust really starts to show up. And, and then you can really dig in. You know, I, I want our pitching staff, all our guys, starters and the relievers, to realize that, you know, I'm there for them. And, and uh, sometimes, you, you know, as a coach, you don't know how much information each guy wants unless they come to you. So sometimes, you know, building that relationship, you can't go in day one and, and see a new pitcher and immediately attack him in something that you believe in, but he doesn't believe in, you know, so you got to form that relationship. And that's kind of what I do in the off season with the, the guys that I don't know is I'm texting them and, and trying to get to know them and ask them if they, what they need from me. And uh, because it's always easier for the coach to make adjustments to the player than the whole pitching staff to make adjustments to the coach. You know, I think I've always talked to you that, that like, I, I you know, I, I work for the Oakland Athletics organization, but I also work with the players uh, to, to work together to get them to be the best pitcher they can possibly be. It's like I'm a drop down in their, in their, in their, their menu on the computer. Okay, there's Emo right there. What can he offer me? And that's, that's ultimately, you know, how you build a relationship with your players. So the longer you have the players, and especially the starting guys that, that we uh, are hoping are going to be our starters, we've been around each other such a long time that we, we can talk open, open door policy. And, you know, I, I, ask them, I ask the guys, you know, tell me what you need me to do. What do I need to do? Or what do I, you think we need to change? And, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's the decisions of myself and the organization on the policies that are set in place, but I want to hear what they got to say, you know? So I think, I think that the, the, uh, you know, at the end of the day, when you're together with each other uh, and, and, you know, Bassett is, is coming into his own. Uh, Frankie Montas is coming in to his own. Uh, Manaya is cool, calm, collected and steady. So, you know, and, and Jesus has got, unbelievable confidence and, and, and electric stuff and puck to the two guys that could be really good left-handed pitching. So it's, it's exciting times, but like I always say, you know, you got to go out there and compete, but that's the one thing I love about our guys. They go out and compete. You know, technology is great. You know, whether we're talking track, man, Hawkeye, rap soda, whatever, is there ever a time where you need to tell one of your guys, just go out and pitch. Stop worrying so much about spin rates and, you know, because you know, people get so wrapped up in the technology and the data. Is there ever that time where, where you need to, like, let, let's slow this down? 
Uh, yeah, all the time. You know, uh, there's a good quote about technology that I saw one day. It says, good coaches with no data are good coaches. Good coaches with data and an understanding how to apply it become great coaches. Technology doesn't replace coaches. It enhances their abilities to maximize their time. So, you know, if you think about the history of baseball, all the data has always been out there right we just never had anything to, to to quantify it or to show somebody i mean we've always had spin rate we've always had gyro spin we've always had launch angle we've always had exit velo we just didn't have the technology to quantify it now we got the technology to quantify it the players make the the uh numbers the numbers it's hard for the numbers to make the player meaning you know, okay, this guy's, uh, you want him to have 2,800 RPM spin rate on his fastball, but he's got 2,100. It's very hard to gain a lot of spin on your fastball without throwing harder. So, you know, the players actually, you know, put up the analytics and they put up the numbers. So you have to understand what's good data, what, what uh, each player can understand, uh, you know, there, there's gyro degrees on the baseball. Most people aren't going to know what the heck gyro degrees are. You know, most people don't know what gyro spin is. So, and most people don't know what spin access is, a horizontal break or how it's measured. I mean, there are so much to technology now, and there's so many different uh, things that the radar systems uh, pick up you want to use what you think is useful, you know, and I, I have a category of stuff that I think is useful and a category of stuff that's just so beyond um, uh, an intelligent conversation with, with the average person that some of it is just way over your head. Yeah. It's kind of like my golf game. The more I think the worse I get. Well, you know, when, when you're the one thing, Two, that since we can quantify uh, the numbers with technology is everybody wants to get better and better, which is, which is great. Uh, but sometimes it's really hard to take a A plus student, where you're gonna go from there. And then sometimes the C student's a C student for a reason, you know? <laughs> and, and it's just hard to get the C student up to be an A student because he just doesn't have the aptitude uh, to understand what he needs to do to take it to the ultimate level. And, and then, you know, when you're, when you're developing, you know, the, the biggest new term for me that, that I, 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 I think is funny, it's called pitch design. You know, all these guys out there are talking about pitch design and how can we get design a pitch? Well, we've been doing that since baseball started, right? It's called getting your pitches better. So you don't really know how good a pitch is until he faces hitters. You can get him in on the mound. You can have a 2,800 spin rate curveball that's really nasty. But if the hitter can track it and he can see it, then it's not as good as we thought it would be. On paper, it's good. The spin and the break numbers are good but maybe there's something in the delivery that the pitcher does that enables the hitter to see the ball longer. And then 
you're wondering why is this breaking ball not very good? And the attributes of the, you know, the, the, the hitters are telling you it's either good or it's bad. They either swing and miss or hit it hard or they take it. I mean, that's what hitters do. So you have to analyze, okay, why is this breaking ball on paper really good? The numbers show up, it spins and it bites, but why can't he create swing and miss? A lot of times he's in bad counts. And a lot of times he overexposes his delivery. He flies off the baseball and the hitters see it longer. So therefore that pitch isn't that good because at the end of the day, the results always tell you how good something is, right? So when, when something you know appears to be good on paper, but is not good in results, you got to figure out why. Well, the best pitch in baseball, isn't it still just strike one? It, well, you know, uh, first pitch strikes in Major League Baseball generally change between 58 and 59% of the time. So th they're, they're very important. But winning, winning uh, two out of three is ultimate goal. Uh, the last time I checked the numbers, so, you, you know, don't quote me on this, but um, the best two-strike count was 3-2, and the batting average was 219, and all other two-strike counts, the batting average was less than 200. So at the end of the day, pitchers want to try to get the two strikes. So winning that 1-1 count and gaining the advantage is, is unbelievable. But it's probably always easier to throw a first pitch strike and guarantee you can probably throw one of the next two for a strike. If you throw a first pitch ball, you got to come back with two straight strikes. So you know, it's just a matter of, you know, how many, how many, uh, what you see, you know, um, first pitch ball and play out batting average at one time. Uh, the last time I checked was uh, 339, but only 8% of first pitch balls are put in play. So 92% of the time your pitch is either a ball, a called strike or a foul ball. And then that other 8% are put in play where the batting average is roughly, you know, three thirties are, are in that range. So, you know, getting after first pitch is, is a good idea in my opinion, because uh, nothing really bad is going to happen to you 92% of the time. Well, Emo, you know, what we used to say in college, speaking of the C student, uh, C's get degrees, my friend. Hey, you, you know, you know uh, and, and I love it. You know, just get that piece of, get that piece of paper. Um, but you, you know, you, you look at those those uh, you know C guys. We don't want we don't you don't want to be a C guy, Townie. You you don't want to be average. You want to be better than that, right? <laughs> every day, I'm striving every day to be better. Well, I, I hope so. You know, and 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 you're you're great to listen to. You know, well, that's I... the that's the beauty of sports too. Is that and, and coaching? You know, I mean. A lot of my day is consumed of, of reading about new technology, reading about new statistics, watching our guys pitch, uh, uh, you know, getting creative ideas of, of something new and keeping the game and keeping it fresh. You know, I, I, hate this, I hate the term now, old school versus new school, uh, because, um, you know, it's like conventional or unconventional. 
you're 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 labeling young guys as uh, new school. You label old guys as old school. You label young guys as non-conventional and the older guys as conventional. But you know, when when you love what you do and you have passion for what you do, there's no such thing as old school, new school. You're gaining all the information and you're evolving. You know, that's you know, I learned this word long ago from former A's pitching coach and pitching coordinator Ron Romanek. It's evolving. We have to evolve. And the evolving part is learning everything, whether it's good, whether you got one company or one technology or one guru, you know, you like to learn them all and listen to them all and formulate your own opinions. And that's how, you know, I feel like I grow as a coach is, is I know what, you know, the, the velocity people love, which I love velocity too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but you got to be able to be major league pitchers. And, you know, from the arm care, I love looking at it to the velocity building to, to how to pitch, you know, and, and, you know, right now we got a lot of uh, young kids uh, becoming throwers, quite frankly, instead of learning how to pitch, they just go out there uh, in a showcase, they see uh, 50 radar guns go up and these kids want, want to sign for big money. So they're going to rear back and let it eat and throw it as hard as they can. And then when I look at these deliveries, I'm always thinking to myself, okay, is this guy sustainable? Where is he? Where would I put this kid's delivery in a game? Is he uh, the fifth inning guy? Is he a starter? Is he a closer? Because if you're one nine to the plate trying to create velocity, the skipper is going to be looking at you like, what the heck is going on? This guy's going to steal second base. This isn't helping us. So some of these velocity building programs, you know, lift it up, get it going, throw the piss out of it. But in reality, that's not pitching delivery. You know, you're, you're, you can't hold runners. And in the big leagues, if you're over one, four, five, one, five, it gets into where you could give away bases and giving away bases could be giving away runs, giving away runs are giving away wins giving away wins are giving away your opportunity to make the playoffs. So that's why those little intangibles always have to show up with pitchers. Is your delivery good enough, sustainable enough to hold runners? Uh, if you fall off the mound so bad and you can't field a bunt, you know, that's a problem. So we don't, you know, these velocity builders or some of these delivery guys don't take that into account that there's, there's other parts of the game that have to happen to, to make yourself a good pitcher. You give me a guy who's 94, 95, that can field his position and hold runners and throw strikes and change speed, or a guy that throws 100 who's got no clue about anything else. I'll take the guy throwing 93 to 95. On your way out, you going Alabama or Ohio State tonight? Man, I'll tell you what. Phil Pohl, our bullpen catcher, went to Clemson I felt so bad for him but I didn't have a great vibe going into that game for Clemson against Ohio State and then in the first quarter I was like man Ohio State they, they can run and speed kills because you know these big time football programs in my opinion already are strong but do they have the speed love Notre Dame and I'm not the greatest football guy but I always loved Notre Dame but I watched Notre Dame 
and they're big and strong, but they're not as fast. I don't, well, I don't think, you know, somebody can tell me I'm wrong, but that's fine. I don't think they're as fast as those other three teams, but tonight's game, you know, Alabama's fast. Ohio State's fast. Um, I, I think it's going to be a good game, but it's always hard to go against Coach Saban. Uh, it's like betting against Tiger Woods. I, I'll take Tiger Woods one-on-one -on -one against anybody every time. So and You're, you're going to win a lot of money doing that too. <laughs> yeah. I, I, think I'm, I think I'm rambling here just to, to think of who I would go with. Uh, I'll, I'll take, um, whoever you're not taking. Uh, I, I, I can't bet against Alabama. Yeah, I hear you. It's a tough one. Right. I mean, like you said, like betting against Tiger Woods back in the day, you're not winning. So I, yeah, I think, uh, there's a reason why they win all those titles and why Nick Saban's going to go down as the greatest college football coach is he just wins the big ones. And, uh, that's the way it's going to be. All right. Hey, buddy. Great stuff. Let's uh, let's hook up again before spring training. Sounds good, guys. Scott Emerson, your pitching coach of the Oakland Athletics. And boy, is that guy bright. I mean, you just you're smarter by talking to him. Not about college football, by the way. I'm talking about pitching. Well, he's taken Ohio State since you're taking Alabama, so we should make sure we text him if Alabama wins. Tell him that he was wrong. I mean, you really going to go against Alabama? Uh, again, I don't want to see an Ohio, Ohio. If you're talking pure college football, is this Alabama, Pennsylvania Ohio hate? Is what you're bringing to our program? No, I totally think that Alabama is so much. Mac, I mean, Justin Fields had a great game against Clemson, but Mac Jones is is good. Devontae Smith won the Heisman at wide receiver. Najee Harris. Bay Area zone from Antioch High. Is they, it not, not question? Is this your Pennsylvania hate versus Ohio? Your Midwest? Are you bringing your Midwestern views to the program right now? No, not at all. This is more just. I think Alabama is a far superior team than Ohio State. No, then again, Dabo Sweeney said that Ohio State shouldn't even been in the playoff, and they they uh, they smoked um, Clemson. So didn't even have them in the top ten. Yeah. Okay, Dabo. What are you going to do when your top when your quarterback goes to the NFL next year? I want to see what Clemson does next year. I think they're going to be fine. Uh, well, they they have a good recruiting class there, and was that South yeah. Carolina, Death Valley? All right. I think they're going to be fine. You, are you, you ready? For yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah, I think they'll be fine. Uh, I don't think they'll be Alabama fine, where they'll just find eight new offensive weapons and be really good. I think. Hello. I I think Clemson will be fine. Scott, how are you? Chris Townsend with the Oakland A's. Chris, good. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well. How is San Diego these days? <laughs> you mean weather-wise or baseball? Baseball, they're fired up. Yeah, well, I mean, as you know, I'm from San Diego, but I haven't been home in over a year. It's like crazy. Wow. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's just this whole year has been so bizarre. Well, and, and, you know, it's so, you know, looking at the baseball landscape and watching so many teams, either they're either sitting on their hands or they don't even have their budgets yet, but yet the San Diego Padres, who are now the only gig in town because the Chargers moved to Los Angeles, 
they're spending money. And I, I got to think the my brother's a season ticket holder. He he's he, he he's loving it right now. What's it like down there in San Diego with the Padres, the one team of baseball, spending money? <laughs> Apologies for the first answer. I I didn't realize we were going on right now. And uh, so to put my game face on, Chris, nice to be with you. And uh, you know, there's a buzz down here in San Diego. I, you know, people are thrilled i don't know i think they're having to pinch themselves uh you know that the, they're used to the padres just kind of being haphazard about everything but you know I, I mean there's no question the padres are are all in and they're in to win i mean the, the moves they made within a few days of each other you know 10 days or two weeks ago acquiring blake snell from tampa bay and you darvish from the cubs along with darvish's personal catcher uh victor carantini um you know, it's amazing. You look at the, I, I'm not a gambler, but you look at the Las Vegas websites right now or the Las Vegas boards and, you know, they've got the Dodgers as the favorites to win the world series, Yankees second, Padres third. I don't know if that's ever happened before in franchise history. Yeah. It's um, I mean, you're looking at power early power rankings and people have vaulted the Padres up to number two. Uh, you, you know what I think people forget? I mean, the Dodgers will probably still make moves, but I yep. think people forget that David Price is coming back. I mean, he's still a quality major league pitcher, and that, that that's another thing that the Dodgers are going to have in their arsenal. Yeah, I mean, they're you're right. They're going to have more uh, in their arsenal than they have as we speak today. I mean, Dave, Dave, people do forget about David Price. And, you know, before he opted out last year because of COVID, um, you know, Dodgers were really excited. They thought he looked really good last spring. He had kind of a lost season two years ago, his last season in Boston. And, and it, 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 he, got, he wasn't healthy. He had surgery on his wrist eventually. And he, he was coming into last year looking to prove some things. He was finally healthy again. And he looked good in the spring. And Dave Roberts, uh, you know, told me during the early part of the coronavirus shutdown before the Dodgers knew that Price was going to opt out, um, you know, Roberts was really excited. He, he said, this is a guy that's pitched in big games. He's healthy again. Uh, and he's got something to prove. And I like what I saw of him in spring training before we got shut down. And, of course, then, uh, you know, Price opted out. But um, he's got championship pedigree. And then, of course, you know, the Dodgers, we don't know yet who they're going to play at third base. They're trying to re-sign Justin Turner. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. I still think it will. But the longer D.J. LeMayhew's out there with the, you know, the Yankees and he, him uh, haven't been able to figure anything out. And, you know, the Dodgers could end up swinging that way as well. So they've got options and they're going to get better. Yeah, it's yeah, got it. DJ LeMayhew, you know, it, it, it's got if you know, if you're a free agent, I think the two teams you do want bidding on you are the Yankees and the Dodgers. That'd be a pretty good deal. Right, yeah, that's the way to get your cash. You no question if <laughs> if it's the Dodgers and Yankees that are bidding on you. So, um, you know, we'll see. I mean, the Dodgers having just signed Mookie Betts to that that monstrous 12-year, $365 million deal last July. Um, you know, I don't know that we're going to see them signing, uh, you know, breaking the bank, but, um, you know, there's no question that they have, uh, you know, they've got the dough if they want to spend it. And, you know, I think that's 
by the way, Chris, part of it's been such a sluggish winter for you know baseball wise for transaction moves. You know, partly because we're still in that part of the COVID before the vaccines are widely available, where people just don't know what to expect. You know, and, and ball clubs will tell you they lost billions of dollars last year, and they're not sure they, they're expecting to take financial bath this upcoming year. Because, you know, as of right now, it doesn't look like they're going to be able to pack stadiums. You know, everybody's hoping to be able to play in front of some fans this year. But the reason I bring all that up uh, as it relates to Justin Turner, D.J. LeMahieu, the Dodgers and the Yankees, um, it's been a slow free agent market for uh, reasons I just listed uh, relating to COVID and finances. But also, uh, you know, you've, you've got when you're free, when the when the free agent market really starts humming, it's when those rich teams uh, in big markets are spending. And, and the issue right now, you know, the Dodgers uh, just signed Mookie Betts last July. The Yankees a year ago, you know, gave all the dough to Garrett Cole. So those two teams just spent on big, big, big pricey free agents. So that doesn't mean they're done, but it means they're probably not going to be offering record-setting contracts so that's the Dodgers and the Yankees who are the other big spenders they're going to help set the market well the Cubs are a huge uh, market team but as we've seen they're closing their window with the current group and they're cutting back on 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 salaries that's why they ship you Darvish to the Padres there are teams that could really grease the market well they're in rebuilding mode too they don't appear ready to spend um, you know, the Mets are the one team out there right now that, that, you know, they just had the huge trade for Lindor and Carlos Carrasco with Cleveland. They still need a center fielder. They're in on George Springer. Um, and, you know, who knows? Trevor Bauer's out there. He's looking to get some paid by, by somebody. And, you know, the Mets right now have that killer rotation, Jacob deGrom and, and Marcus Stroman, if he can stay healthy. And, of course, Carlos Carrasco, adding him to that. And then later on this summer, uh, Noah Syndergaard will be back after he, he recovers from his rehab. You know, when I think about the health of the sport, when you have these big market teams like the Red Sox, the Cubs, you can say up here uh, where we are with the San Francisco Giants, where they're all kind of in some type of rebuild, retool, whatever you want to call it. I've been thinking about this, and, I, and I'm curious to th- see what you think. If we're going to have – certain tiers of a luxury tax for spending too much on players. Shouldn't we, if you're going to have a house and you're going to have a roof, shouldn't you have a floor? Shouldn't there be like a floor to say, Hey, listen, everybody's making money. You're making money from the the national money. You're making money from the app. You're making money from the merchandise. Everybody has to at least spend, I don't know, call it 50 million or 60 million. If you're going to have a ceiling, shouldn't there be a floor with teams? Yeah, I mean, you know, and 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 in the players' union, does they first off, they don't want to talk in those terms. They don't want a ceiling or a floor. They're big on the free market, but at the same time, when they did, when the players' union did agree to a luxury tax, um, yeah, there's that luxury tax. There's no floor per se, but that luxury tax money, um, the revenue sharing, that money is supposed to go into a pool that goes to the low revenue teams, you know, uh, like the Marlins and the pirates. And then those teams are supposed to then take what they get in revenue sharing and reinvest it into their 
roster. Now, that in the era of tanking the last several years hasn't happened. You know, we've seen, you know, the Marlins finally made the playoffs this past year, but two or three years ago, you know, they traded Giancarlo Stanton, they traded Marcelo Zuna, JT Real Muto, and then they shaved their payroll way down. We've seen the Pirates do it. Uh, the Players Union has filed grievances, um, and I believe it's with those two teams. They filed two grievances, I think, with the Marlins and Pirates a couple years ago, and th- that's still floating out there somewhere. But, but to your point, there's no official floor. But yes, in theory, there should be because these teams should be reinvesting their their revenue sharing back into the, their product. Yeah, I think it it would be for the betterment of the game. And when I think about it from from an A's standpoint, you know, the A's are used to fishing in this kind of pond. Uh, you know, just just you know, thinking about what Billy Bean, David Forrest, you know, there's over 270 free agents out there right now. How how, how do you think this off season is going to go down before we actually get to spring training? Um, there's going to have to. I think what's going to happen is. The last month or three weeks of the offseason, there's going to be a flurry of signings. There's going to have to be. Now, the problem is by that time, the market will be diluted enough that I'm not sure, uh, you know, you're not going to see giant signings. uh, And some players are going to have to settle for a lot less money than they would like. But, you know, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, there are a couple things we know for sure, a couple things we don't know for sure. What we do know for sure, Chris, and it happens every year, at some point, spring training is going to start. And when that starts, 30 teams are going to go to work. And each of those 30 teams is going to need to field a team. So they're going to have to sign some players. There are a lot of teams out there. They're going to have to fill some holes and fill some positions before spring training. So that's all the stuff we know. So players are going to get signed. What we don't know, and this also plays into the sluggishness we've seen so far, we don't know for sure. We're assuming spring training is going to start mid-February and the season is scheduled to start on April 1st. But it's been pretty quiet from the executive offices in baseball. There's a lot of people in the sport that think that that because of COVID, that spring training is going to be pushed back a month or or so. And that the start of the season may be pushed back a month or so. Uh, You know, People in baseball, I know fans, everybody will be ready for baseball. We, nobody wants it to get pushed back. But, you know, the reality is the vaccinations, as we know, uh, state by state, this, it's been a slow rollout. And part of what baseball would like is the players to be vaccinated and as many fans as possible so that they can actually have fans in the stands, you know. And, and, and otherwise, it, as I say, when the, when, when, when the season starts, whether it's April 1st or May 1st or June 1st, whatever, the owners are going to, they want, they understand that they're not going to just all of a sudden open up the gates and there's going to be 40,000 people per game this year. There very well might be a cap at 25% of a stadium. But even for that to happen, people are going to have to be vaccinated. And so that's, this big unanswered question that's still out there this winter. And, and I don't even know if commissioner Rob Manford and his people have, they don't have all the information yet to even answer these questions because they like the rest of us need to see 
how's the vaccine rollout going to, is it going to pick up steam? Are more people going to be vaccinated? You know, can we reach a point by March 1st or whatever? I'm just picking out a date there where, where a, a lot of people are getting vaccinated. And, and so all of this plays into, as I said, the unanswered question, we know players are going to be signed. Teams are going to have to figure this out and, and sign players and field teams. We just, when the drop dead date is when spring training is going to start, uh, we don't know for sure. And it's a lot. And, and, and so that means teams are kind of still in this, in this wait and see mode right now. And it's, it's, it's frustrating, you know, for everybody. Yeah. And, and, and a question that I would have for major league baseball and for the owners is I just watched a playoff game in Buffalo with fans in the stands. I'm watching college right. football games with fans in the stands where the NFL is going to play a full season all the way through the Super Bowl. And you're going to have fans at the Super Bowl in Tampa Bay. So it's going to be like, it, when you say it's going to be tough for people to talk about delays and you're like, NBA's playing, NHL's yep. playing, NFL just completed a full season. What do you mean you're not going to be able to play a full season? No, that's a legitimate point. And, and I think that's part of the frustration, too, uh, because, you know, the same thing. You know, I've been watching and we did, by the way, play a World Series in, in, yeah. in October with fans in the stands. But, you know, part of that is it's a state by state thing as, as we speak right now. And, and in those NBA games you're talking about watching, Chris, and the football games we're watching, fans are in the stands in Buffalo, but yet as the NFL season ended, they weren't in the fans were not in the stands in California because our state, I can say our state, because you're up North of me in Oakland area and I'm down South in San Diego, our state, the numbers aren't good. And, and what, if I recall, I'm not a huge NFL guy, but the, um, the 49ers, they had to go like on the road to both practice and play because they weren't even allowed to play in an empty stadium for a bit this year. Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. They had to play in Arizona. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the other thing too, you know, baseball was able to get through a 60 game season last year by, by basically playing its schedule in geographical pods, but you know, nobody wants to do that. And executives I've talked to talked about how difficult it was to do that last year. And nobody wants to try to play a full season under all kinds of COVID restrictions where you're playing a national schedule in 162 games. And, to your point about the stands, you know, that's that you're exactly right. But that's the other thing. If say the season starts as scheduled April 1st, you know, and, and, and the vaccines are still slow, you know, it, would baseball get into a situation where, you know, 12 teams can play in front of their home stadiums with 25 or 30% capacity and another 12 teams, uh, they can play in front of fans sometimes, but maybe the next week the numbers are bad and they can't. And then could there be a few teams like in, we're at in California right now where teams just can't play in front of anybody. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's tough right now to navigate all this. Yeah, th there's no doubt about it. And, and I mean, I, I think for these executives and we talked to David Forrest about this, our general manager, yep. it, it's, it's so tough that the, we don't even know what the roster size is going to be. Well, right. That's the other thing. You're right. I mean, what's the roster size going to be? 
National League teams, they don't know for sure. Are they going to play with a designated hitter like they did last year, or are they not? I mean, as of right now, you you know, you would say no because that was a one-year thing. But by the time the owners and the players figure out the blueprint for 2021, obviously some things have to be negotiated, and then obviously that makes everybody that, that within a – seven zip codes of the sport get all nervous because we know how difficult, you know, it's going to be, you know, if there's going to be more negotiations with the owners and players, forget the collective bargaining agreement that expires after this year. But if there's, there's got to, as of right now, probably be some negotiations just to get the game on the field this year. And, you know, I mean, what's, how many teams make the playoffs? We don't know for sure about that. The designated hitter in the national league. We don't know that they've got a lot to figure out. And here we are, what is today, January 11th? I mean, pitchers and catchers, four to five weeks they're supposed to report. There's a lot of work to do, both by the 30 teams, but also by the the ownership group and the players' union in figuring out what this season's going to look like and when it's going to start and what happens when they can finally get the game back on the field. Well, I got to tell you, once this thing gets going, it's going to be fascinating to see how many guys sign, how we get it yeah, going. Yeah. But we're going to have baseball. That is the good news. Hey, it's great to hear your voice. I've always appreciated your time coming on the program. Be safe down there in Southern California, and we'll talk soon. Chris, you too as well. All the same right back to you. Happy New Year to you and all the listeners. Everybody listening, stay safe. Let's try to pull together. It's been a tough year, and and, uh, man, we all hope 20 things get better in 2021, uh, both for the country, but, you know, within our little corner of the country in the baseball world. And it'll be nice when the weather's warm and the game's back on the field, won't it? Well, next time I can get back home to San Diego, I want to buy you a beer. <laughs> I'll be happy to take you up on that. And, and, I, and, and I, I hope it can be a case where we can go somewhere and we won't need to wear masks and maybe – us and most of our fellow citizens will have been vaccinated and we'll be so happy. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. Take care, my friend. Be well. Chris, you too. Thanks. Scott Miller, longtime baseball columnist right here on A's Cast Live. Interesting. You know, Cody, it's very, you know, it's interesting. Like, you watched the game, too. When when I turned on that game and Governor Cuomo allowed that to happen and you turned on the game and there's that many fans in the stands, that was like, wow. There's going to be fans. Where, where, where is this game being played tonight? Are they in New Orleans? That is a fantastic question. I never even thought of where it was played. Yeah, neither did I. I've, I've, I've read the preview. I got the whole thing. The national title game is being played. Uh, let me see. I want to say it's um, Hard Rock. It's in Miami, Hard Rock Stadium. Is that Miami? Yeah. They're going to have fans in the stands. You know, that was crazy. Like, turned on the Buffalo Bills game, it was like, wow. I told you this before what before the show started because the Sharks are in the same situation that the 49ers are in. And someone had a tweet like, not saying either side is right or wrong, but the Sharks are playing in Arizona against the Coyotes uh, on Thursday night. 
with about 3,500 people in attendance where the Sharks can't even practice at home by themselves. Yeah. So it's just a it, – it, everywhere is different. I mean, clearly. I don't think there was like tw- – I think there was – 2,500 fans or so at the Steelers-Browns game last night, but it was supposed to be like close friends and family of Steelers people, but then there was some guy dressed up as Nick Chubb uh, and a Brown. So I'm like, who let that guy in? But they laid some fans there. There were fans at the Bills game for the first time all year. I think the Saints have had fans all year. Uh, I don't know how Lambeau's going to be this weekend, but, you know, you figure Lambeau might want to have some fans. fans. They're going to have fans. There's going to be fans at the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, totally. It's in Tampa Bay. It's like it's like you're watching, uh, you know, the Seahawks. Who well, I guess Niner fans will be happy that that they tanked, but you're looking at the Seahawks take on the LA Rams, and no one's in the stands. But before their game, what day was Buffalo? Was that Saturday or Sunday? That was Saturday they played. And then when was Seahawks? They played all after, these. They played. They played after the Bills and uh, Colts. Right? So, so you watched a game with fans. To then watch another game with no fans. Yeah, Seattle didn't have fans all year. Either did the uh, the Rams either. Uh, well, obviously because they're in California, so yeah, it was a kind so of a pick your poison so game. To see all these games, like Notre Dame had fans. Call it Alabama. They had fans. Like you see these games that has fans, and then you get back to the West Coast, and there's no fans. It's very interesting. I was just curious to see. Like, what are we going to see tonight? What are, I mean, are, how, I mean, what are we are we going to see twenty thousand? I mean, what are we going to see in uh, at Hard Rock Stadium for the national championship game? I'm going to look and see how many fans are allowed to be there. Um, only sixteen thousand fans can attend uh, the national title game, according to Sporting News. Now, the stadium holds sixty five thousand two hundred thirty six. They're going to let sixteen thousand people in, so it's a fraction of what it is, but still. A fourth, essentially, if you do the math, almost is about a fourth of the fans yeah. going to let in. But that's, um, I mean, that's still more than what we've seen anywhere in California. I mean, that's what the Bills had what three thousand fans? I think they're allowed to have yesterday or Saturday in Buffalo. Uh, and I, I don't know how many Saints have in, but it, feel, it, feel, it feels like the uh, Voodoo Dome is always ha- they, they've had fans all year. But uh, yeah, I'm curious to see what it's like to have more than you know what the World Series had what ten thousand fans at. The Rangers' new ballpark, I think, is what it was. So this is going to be a little bit more than what we saw at the World Series, but uh, I'd, have, I'd have to look up how many people are allowed at the Super Bowl. But, um, I mean, things are changing. The, you know, our governor, Governor Newsom, just rolled out. He wants to have vaccination sites going forward because of how bad it's getting, which is a good thing because that just means more people get vaccinated. They have a, a whole bunch of new doses of the vaccine coming. Like I mentioned to you, my fiance is getting her second, the second part of it, I think, this week. So she'll have it, but she's an essential healthcare worker. So I'm glad people like her are getting it first, uh, you know, opposed to lower level citizens like you and I. Uh, us lower level employees. <laughs> <laughs> Today was fun, man. It's nice. It's nice getting back into a little bit of rhythm. And, and, and Scott said it, and he's right. And we're about to have a flurry of signings. Like I hope once, so. once, 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 once everything kind of gets announced and spring training and what, we're going to have a flurry, and it's going to be, it's going to be fun. Uh, and, and 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 the players, you just got to have some patience. You know, we're going to have a season. We're going to have spring training. It's it's coming. It's around the corner. 
But then, you know, once the rules need to be established, and once the rules are established, it's going to be it's going to be hard to keep up with that many guys signing. I mean, we're still, you know, when we start talking about 270 plus free agents out there that are going to sign, you know, these teams are going to have to fill out the rosters. And it's going to be it's going to be fast and furious. I just want to know I just want to see there's a few things that I want to see. I want to know where Bauer's going because he's a friend of ours. That's good. It's good friend Trevor Bauer. Um, apparently, he wants forty million a year. Uh, I like it more that he wants to pitch every four days. I want to know how that's going to go over among you know different clubs and how they feel about that. Um, I also like his the idea that he wants to vlog, like be a you know do vlogs while he's pitching still, so he can like document his career, which is pretty cool. I mean, I, I like that he's into all that. Yeah. Um, I want to see what where Liam Hendricks ultimately ends up because I'm tired of hearing about how every team is going to sign him and no one signed him yet. White Sox. The Astros are the newest one. The Astros are the newest team that are apparently in on Liam Hendricks. Man, would that – him and Stanek on the same team? I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah, that'd be juicy. That would be really juicy. But, yeah, it's it's – you know, the more interactive the game can get, the better for the game. Oh. And I, I think we're all – you know, we were talking to – who are we talking to about Fernando Tatis Jr.? Did we talk to someone from San Diego? Uh, we would talk to oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, yeah, Sweeney. Mark Sweeney. Yeah, I think he meant today. It was Mark Sweeney. Yeah, it was uh, talking about the game that the A's and the Padres played last year. I mean, Mark Can is on the bench talking about food. I mean, it was awesome. I mean, Mark Canna was talking as he's going up to the home, going up to home plate. Hey, you got Fernando Tatis mic'd up talking to the Brock. I mean, it's it was awesome. If we could have that on a regular basis to showcase all these personalities, and let me tell you something: Matt Chapman's got a great personality. Canna, good personality. Like you start looking at our guys, I mean, it would be, you know, it'd be really cool. To have guys, might how about a starting pitcher mic'd up and you're hearing what he's saying? That would be awesome. Uh, Ramon Laureano is a good one. I mean, you're gonna have to have, oh. you're gonna have to have a delay on him or a uh, dump button, but <laughs> <laughs> but he's so entertaining. Uh, yeah, that is correct. You're gonna have to. You're gonna. You're gonna. <laughs> you you're gonna have to tape him and not put him in real time because uh, every once in a while something's gonna fly. Prescotti's good. Yeah, he's like thinking about guys. I mean, how about a catcher? How about Murph getting mic'd up? How about a catcher being mic'd up? It's a it's an interesting call because you know you're, they have to go through all the signs and yeah. pitches and, and sequences and defenses and all that stuff. That be that be interesting. I, I like the idea of the shortstops. Like Tatis has a good personality. Um, so does um, uh, Lindor has a great personality too. Like this, some of those guys. Uh, they're great, and the guys you don't know about, like people, a lot of people probably don't know how great of a personality Mark Canna has, and it got showcased in the uh, in that that game against the Padres. And I think he might have been mic'd up for one of those games against the the White Sox on ESPN as well. No, that'd be good stuff. All right, we're going to be back on Thursday, right? One to four. That's correct. With Raymond Fossey again. With the great Ray Fossey. Thank you for listening to A's Cast. We're going to replay this show. And then we'll get back to A's cast 
Of course, A's cast powered by iHeartRadio. Stay safe, everybody, and we'll talk to you on Thursday. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.